This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Happy Wednesday. Hope you are enjoying it. You got a great start, huh? And uh, hope you're taking care of that cough. It's really impacting Hillary Clinton today. We'll be getting into uh, all the latest and greatest. Hillary just has a cough. She's in a situation now where she can't just clear her throat. No, you can't clear her throat. So she holds back so that she doesn't cause some media firestorm over her pneumonia or something. Yeah, it's worse than pneumonia. And then it turns worse because now she's... Hiding or trying to hold back a cough, and then it happens, something? and yeah. So there you go. Even um, Newt Gingrich, while talking about her cough, started coughing. Is he dying? What's happening with I don't Newt? Know. Maybe something's going on that we don't know about. Is this a politician only illness? Mm-hmm. This is better than choking, though. Yeah, I'd much rather cough than choke. You know, we got a great show for you. We'll be talking. A little bit about uh, politics today. Voters who oppose politicians are more active. Did you know that? If you have an opposition to a, to a politician, you are going to be a more active hmm. voter. So is it more of the negative motivation that gets yeah. you out the door rather yeah. than positive? Interesting. You're, you, Yeah, you're so tired of everybody. I've often questioned when, when you see these rallies and people are out there cheering and they're, they're you know, pumping their fists and they're trying to get their phones up there in the incorrect way to to, uh, record a video with the candidate, (laughs) you know, the vertical video. It's ruined. Um, People are really motivated by these political candidates. And I've never been motivated by an individual before like that. Not even me? No. Not motivational, Matt? No. I would never pick up and go to the airport to watch Trump talk about no, why I he wants either. to be president. I won't even do it to go see my favorite team that just won the championship. No, it'll be on TV. Yeah, it's a long drive to the airport. But that's more my aversion to like concerts and uh-huh. yeah. theme music. Your antisocial and, behavior. Yeah, there's antisocial there. So, but whatever. But I mean, you You're see, you see people. They're motivated, and yeah. inspired by somebody. I think and that'd I wonder, be interesting. Does that mean that Trump has more people that are? angry and and motivated because he has more people at his events he has a lot of angry people and maybe that's why he's drawing such big crowds yeah hillary nobody wants to go see somebody just cough the whole time (laughs) yeah for the what the one minute she coughed and the 500 hours of video replayed of that one minute it was easily two minutes okay coughing I mean, but she says she's allergic to Trump. She she told us what's she's going on. She's saying it's allergies to Trump, right? Yeah, but I don't think she's ever been in the room with him. I mean, recently, she will be. Yeah, she'll be in the same building tonight. Gonna, I believe. I know she'll be a train wreck when she's in the debates because he, you know, he'll, he'll just be, be right there. Yeah, like, and he'll have fans pointed all that hair, blowing all of his all that hair all product dander wafting and, across mm-hmm. the room. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yikes! You know, it smells like berries. Really, his hair product. That's what I was told. Like Barry Switzer? Like a mixed berry oh, sort love- of metal site sort of thing. Yeah, you know, like love that. gross hair product smell. Uh, we will be, we will be <laughs> talking today about voter activity and kind of the anti – when you're anti a candidate, your, your voting activity is going to go up. 
crazy research. We'll get into that with Dr. Richard Petty. Also, we'll be celebrating Salami Day. My favorite song, the meat song. You got to love it. Got to love it. We'll be talking more about Salami Day and it's National Fill the Love Day. So much love in the air. Can't get enough of your love, baby. Hmm. Barry White, man. Nothing says love more than throwing on a little Barry White. Yeah. That's what I've heard. I tried that once. Yeah. Didn't. My wife would be like, turn that down. (laughs) That's a racket. I'm getting a racket. Uh, Lots of fun today. We'll get to all of that, plus headlines, a lot of other information. But first, we must get to Sadie Nielsen with the national headlines. Sadie, what's going on? Roger Ailes will not pay any portion of the millions owed to Gretchen Carlson as part of a settlement. Her lawsuit alleged alleging the former Fox News CEO sexually harassed her before firing her from the network. 21st Century Fox and Carlson agreed upon a $20 million settlement. Multiple outlets reported Tuesday, ending a two-month epic that ultimately including the ousting of Ailes from the network he built. Convicted rapist Brock Turner registered as a sex offender on Tuesday morning in Ohio, several days after being released from jail. The former Stanford University student served a three-month sentence for sexually assaulting an unconscious woman on campus this year. His actions made international headlines after his victim's courtroom letter denouncing him and his defenders went viral and reaped further outrage when the judge gave him and what to what many believed to be a light sentence. After returning from a seven-week recess, the Senate was gridlocked once again as attempts were made to get a Zika funding bill passed. Democrats blocked taking up the bills from the GOP to pay for a public health response to the virus. That and an agreement to fund the Pentagon next year were not reached, meaning the government could be shut down on September 30th if there is not a resolution. And finally, a six-month-year-old boy... In North Carolina, oh, sorry, just six-month-old boy, uh, showed his water sporting skills as he claimed the record of the world's youngest water skier. What? Mm-hmm. Rob Absher shared a video of his son Auburn as he became the youngest baby to water ski at just six months old. and oh, wow. Or six months and ten days old. And his mother ran alongside him as he did so. Ran? Oh, were they skiing in the desert? It was just a little water. It was, it was like, in the shallows. It was okay. like four feet. Oh, four cute. Feet. Six months. Did yeah. social services come by and take the child after that? Yeah, right after that, social services picked him up. Man, Sadie, interesting news. I guess if they can get a squirrel to water ski or a dog to water ski, they could probably get a six-month baby, especially if you're going to run in the shallows. Let's see that kid ski in the ocean. Huh? Huh? Yeah, show some skill. Show some real skill, you little baby. Such a baby. Hey, uh, boy, where do we start? Let's start with the presidential candidate that no one really knows anything about. Who would that be? Stein? Evan McMullen. Oh, yeah. Remember him? Mm-hmm. The, he's a BYU grad. Yep. Former CIA Agent, yeah, or operative, or analyst, or something, and then he also works for the Republican Party in some right. way, and now he's kind of taken the Never Trump sort of does, movement. Does he have a cough? 
No, I believe he is uh, in all reports healthy, but no one really knows because he's not really doing... Not a lot of reports. A lot of national media. But apparently in all nine states where he has officially qualified for, on the presidential ballot, McMullen has listed a Nathan Johnson as his vice presidential nominee. Wow. McMullen's campaign won't provide any more information about Johnson, including which of the thousands of people named Nathan Johnson is the actual <laughs> nominee the campaign's referring to, saying he's only a placeholder until McMullen names an actual running mate. But in eight of the nine states, top election officials say McMullen's campaign can't pull Johnson's name off the ballot. Oh, boy. And that it's Nathan Johnson, not whomever McMullen eventually names his vice presidential pick, that will appear on the ballot. See, this, so, is, this is the problem with kind of the late run, right? You got you to gotta run earlier. So he puts his name in as a placeholder. And Nate Johnson's his brother-in-law. Yeah, you know so that. he's kind of stuck so with that name. he's got the job. The, ma- the mother-in-law's like, you better name Nate as your running mate. So awkward at the family reunion. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah. Poor Nate Johnson, whoever this guy is. What if it's not a real person? Yeah, he should have picked a better alias. Yeah. Did you hear uh, a lot of people want to know there was um, there's an African-American gentleman that ran in and saved Hillary a few weeks ago when when the Secret Service jumped on the stage for her. Do you remember that? Okay. And he put his arm around her. Okay. They want to know who that is. They want to know who this guy is because he's the guy that is always around her. He's like her body person. Mm. And but he's not Secret Service, they say, because no Secret Service agent would dare touch her. Like okay. that, like he did. He like right. really brought her in and took sure. care of her. But uh, they're wondering if it's her doctor because she's got this terminal right. cough that's, problem. That's that's exactly who it is. It could be a doctor. Maybe it's like an oncologist. It's an internist, yes. She's coughing up. She's got a productive cough. <laughs> it's productive. You can hear it working. <laughs> I can't believe they're making <laughs> such a big deal. Yeah. She's got a cough. Yep. And if you've ever been a speaker where you speak a lot, and especially she has to raise her voice and yell a lot at her people, and they keep getting her in trouble with her emails. And as I was telling you, there was a uh, a conservative radio host who said at this time of the year, allergies kicking in. Anyone that speaks and has allergies has this problem. Right. And he's like, let's just move on. Give her a little bit of room to, to, to clear her throat and she can continue with her message. And but. I bet it, I bet, honestly, the longer you've used your voice, so the older you get, it, it honestly would get harder, I would think, too, because it's hard for me. It's harder for me to speak now without a microphone than it was 10 years ago. Mm. So now I carry my own portable mic system anywhere I go. Nice. Just in case I have to speak. Sure. I think she'll be a one term president at this rate. You yeah. think so? She might never make it to the, well, the four she, years. Yeah. She may not even make it to January if she wins with that cough. <laughs> People. Hey, uh, now Ben Carson's all over the birtherism thing. So Donald yes. Trump used to question if, what, eight, nine years ago, used to question if Barack Obama really was from the United States. Mm. He sent private investigators to Hawaii to look at the documents. Right. And uh, they looked at them, but then he never actually reported actually what, what their findings were. He said, we'll know soon, and then never actually reported. So. so Ben Carson says Donald needs to apologize for this because it's costing Donald. One thing that I hear all the time when I talk to African-American voters is they are resistant to Donald Trump because he led the charge uh, to say that the nation's first African-American president was born in Africa 
uh, and not born in the United States. Do you think it's time for Donald Trump to acknowledge that all that birther nonsense was a mistake and to apologize so that African-American voters to whom he's reaching out might be more willing to listen to his message? I think that would be a good idea. Absolutely. I suggest that on, on all sides. Let's, let's get all of the, you know, the hate and rancor out of the way. Rancor. That was a long question. Yeah, for a yeah, sure. Jake Tapper just like <laughs> that's why I cut it that way. It was thirty minutes funny. of questions, nine he, seconds. He does that quite a bit, and by the time you get to the answer, there's really only one answer. You know that's why I mean? you just say yes. Yeah, and then just sit there because he's 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 leading the witness with every question. But Donald's convinced that his birtherism didn't actually affect his African American support. You think your birther position has hurt you among African Americans? I don't know. I have no idea. I don't even talk about it anymore, Bill. No, I because know. you know, I just but don't bother talking about it. But it's there. It's on the record. You know. I don't know. I guess. I guess with maybe some. I don't know why. I, I don't. I really don't know why. But I don't think very few people. You're the first one that's brought that up in a while. Um, I don't think so. I mean, look. I went to Detroit. We had. It was like a love fest. We had just a great, great time. I was there for a long time. Uh, again, the bishop and his wife and the whole congregation, they were, these are fantastic Did people. Did change the subject? It's called just filibustering until they forget the question, yes. La, 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 la. That he's just been at, change the subject. He's been asked multiple times over the last couple of weeks, will you walk back the whole birther I don't even talk about that. Yeah, I maybe. haven't even yeah. talked about that except for when you asked me about it for years. <laughs> well, let's talk about your taxes. Do you... Do you think you need to pay taxes? Because Hillary thinks you, you need to show your taxes. He said that the American people don't care about his tax returns. Uh, and in fact, he's also uh, said that it's none of our business. Uh, I just think he's dead wrong. I mean, the reason that presidential candidates going back decades have released their tax returns is because the American people want to know. If they're going to entrust a president with the management of our country's finances, they want to know how did this person handle his or her own finances. Hillary Clinton in a wind tunnel. On the airplane, second day in a row. On her special airplane. Press conference. By the way, didn't hack or cough once. 30 minutes. It really, she had a 30 minute. She, it was she 30, spoke for 30, 30 minutes. minutes yesterday, probably, wow. I think another 20, 30 That's minutes That's again. That's all she needed was an airplane. Yeah. So she makes a great point that you need to have transparency and release your taxes so mm. that we can see your fiscal responsibility. It's true. Which is the perfect argument, minus the fiscal responsibility, for why we would want to release all of our emails. Sure. Right? On time. Not have 17,000 come up. Hmm. Missing that will now have to be hopefully exchanged before the election. Maybe. You could drag this out. If we can get to that. <laughs> Along with our calendars. We've got to release calendars. Oh, we'll see those later. <sighs> but she sounds better. Like right there, she sounds. I think it's because she's in that hermetically sealed airplane. Could be. No infection, no bacteria. She has a special kind of oxygen pumped in. Was I think that sound is not her airplane. That's her in her oxygen tent. No, it's the airplane. It's She's standing sure? in the aisle. They say it's highly awkward. It's like the awkward junior high first date. 
Not yeah. sure what to say. Somebody says something weird. You just kind of move on. No well, one, you know why she has to stand in the aisle. Was that? Because she needs to be able to lean on chairs because she's well, she got is, those She does problems. have both hands on the chairs yeah. and all the reporters are climbing over them. So. And some big guy behind her ready to catch yeah. her because she's – it sounds more like she's in a bed, in an oxygen tent, <laughs> taking questions. Could be. Are you sure that's not like a medic evac helicopter? I, I, I saw the video. It's okay. the airplane. It's the airplane. I just didn't know she was this sick. But the Drudge Report says she's not doing well. And I always look to Drudge for all my health news Yeah, on the also, Democratic candidate. if you're looking at Drudge, polls, Trump's up 19. Nice. In the military area. <laughs> nice. Military and veteran voters, except for the fact that he offended a lot of them. And he said he had something like 90 generals, and then the uh, Clinton campaign came out and said, hey, we have 95. They all like us. <laughs> Our generals are younger and faster than your generals. Numbers are, are you know, negotiable. Yes. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's move on. We will get to the, the next guest. We're going to replay a, an interview we did with Richard Petty. Dr. Richard Petty is an expert uh, that can walk us through, you know, voter, uh, voter tendencies. And what, you know, what happens to drive people to vote? Is it really more about how much you love a candidate or is it how much you dislike a candidate? Well, stick with us, folks. Interesting, interesting uh, guests coming up next. Voters who oppose politicians. They're much more active. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, a candidate's appeal to the public is vital, right? If you want to get elected, you got to have people supposedly that like you. But, uh, you know, maybe gaining supporters also can happen by just simply having people not like the opponent. It might simply be that your opponent is just hated and you're not even necessarily liked, but that might turn into some interesting energy. And a new research study led by our guest, uh, Dr. Richard Petty. Dr. Petty finds that opposition inspires more confidence in a voter's position than support. According to Dr. Petty, knowing whether candidate preferences are driven by support or opposition, anger or fear, you know, they might be better determinants than uh, really who's even donating money. And uh, really, if they even like a candidate or not. So we've asked him to join us today from Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Petty is a distinguished university professor at the Ohio State University. Dr. Petty, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good to be here, Matt. Great to have you. Interesting research. Talk to us about uh, some of your findings. So people are really, I guess, more driven, more active politically based on dislike or anger and frustration than actually the candidate they like? Well, we're very interested in studying confidence and how it turns your thoughts into action and things like that. And so one of the sources of confidence or an action orientation is dislike more than like or something bad as opposed to something good. So if you think about it out of the political context, imagine I were to tell you, hey, Matt, something bad is going to happen. You'd immediately start to think, oh, my God, what can I do? I need Mm. to do something. Something bad is going to happen. a tornado is going to happen. I've got to do something. A bad person is going to move in next door to you. Oh, I have to get new locks. I have to do something. 
If I said, hey, Matt, something good's going to happen. It's going to be a great, beautiful day today. You'd go, super, I'll sit back and enjoy it. Just relax. Just relax. Yeah. Good things are going to happen. It doesn't give you that same uh-uh. action orientation. So the idea of some candidate is bad, we've got to stop him because he's bad. Immediately, I have to do something. I have to vote for somebody else. I have to donate money to my preferred candidate. I've got to stop that bad thing from happening. Interesting. So, now, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Just take it out of the political context. You can see how immediately something bad, your, your antenna go up, you go into action mode. I have to stop it. Well, in fact, it makes sense, right? So we're more likely to deal with our health once we have bad news versus just trying to be healthy our whole life. That's why preventive medicine is very difficult. Uh-huh. I'm feeling good. That's why people stop taking their medicine as soon as they start to feel a little better. I don't have to do anything anymore. Hmm. Things are good. Yeah. So this is interesting, too, because this all predates Donald Trump. It sure does. <laughs> this isn't this, this whole phenomenon about the anti-Trump. It's just it just happens to be going on this year. But so talk about that. Maybe is this this political year in the context of the political year? I guess a lot of people are, are kind of the anti-government. So they're they're seeing the government or or, you know, the status quo as bad. So there's a and lot of movement ads, against it. Absolutely. Negative ads have been around for a long time. They were not invented this year. Right? Hmm. We've seen them before. But right. They've just kind of gone on steroids this year. And in part. Um, if you think about what negativity does, it inspires confidence and an action orientation. Different emotions do different things as well. So, so for example, uh, even though fear and anger are both negative emotions, right. fear puts you kind of in a doubtful orientation. I don't know what to do. Whereas anger makes you feel like I am right. People are against me. The government's horrible. I'm angry. So if it makes you angry. You again have this confidence. And once you have confidence, then your thoughts start to turn into action. And, and you can have confidence and be inaccurate. Yes, you can totally have uh, confidence and be inaccurate. And unfortunately, if you're confident in your inaccurate stuff, you're more likely to act on that, too. Holy cow. This is fascinating. And I guess this is because you're a psychologist, but you also like to get into the kind of political modeling and, and uh, kind of decision-making idea. Is this – have you ever seen – maybe a more angry uh, electorate. Well, it's interesting that if you think about what we've gone through before, sometimes the negative emotion has been fear after 9-11, right. things like that. And so fear, you're doubtful, it makes you want to rally around the flag and sort of it, it's, it's a unifier as opposed to anger, which is a polarizer. Because when people are angry, they're angry about different things. And angry anger makes you confident in whatever you're thinking, right? And so... If we have Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, they start to think their side is more right, and it just makes compromise even more difficult Mm. if you're angry, if that's the source of your belief, as opposed to fear, which makes you want to come together to try to still do something. But fear makes us doubtful of our own view, and we look to others and social norms and things to come together. So for politics, and, and at least coming together, if that's your concern, Fear would be better than anger. It's interesting. So maybe, and maybe I guess uh, they end up playing them together, huh? So they, because they, like for example, it seems like the Republicans are constantly being called fear mongers. So fear mongering is maybe how they unite the party, uh, and then anger is how we fight against another party. Directed against the others. Wonderful insight, Matt. That's powerful theory, though. I mean, I guess if you want, but but fear doesn't necessarily drive change. It just kind of drives 
unity? Well, fear, yeah, drives you to want to be part of the group. Right? Yeah, doubtful, yeah, to be included. Hmm. Be included, yes. Hmm. Is, this, is, uh, this has got to be an interesting year for you to be watching, then. It is. It's, uh, we, we've done some of this work before in previous cases, uh, but the ne- level of anger and negativity have not been as high as they are this year. All, all the polls seem to indicate that a lot of the voters are being driven to go out, turnouts at a record in many of these primaries, and it's the angry people who are really showing up at the yeah. rallies, you know, 10,000 people in, a, in an arena. just hasn't really happened to this extent before. Is there any positive driver that is as uh, confidence-building um, as the negative driver of anger? Well, happiness is another emotion that makes you uh, feel confident, because when we feel really joyful, we also feel confident, right? Right. So that's a positive thing. A power. When you feel powerful, uh, even undergraduates, if you do an experiment and you randomly assign half of them to be the boss and have to be the employee, the ones who feel powerful all of a sudden start to feel confident, and then they start to get into an action orientation, and they start to do whatever they're thinking. Hmm. Right? So if you think of it as uh, how confidence leads to just saying what's ever in your head, if you think back to the time you were in school, if you're sitting in a classroom, let's say, yeah. and... You, you're, you have a question that's in your head, and you want to know, do you actually raise your hand and ask that question? Well, if you feel really confident or you're one of those people, you're going to put your hand up right away and just blurt it out. Sure. Here's my question. If you don't feel very confident, you're going to sit there, you're going to think about it some more, and so forth. So some candidates this year notoriously feel very confident in themselves, right? Right. Um, and they are the ones who just say whatever pops into their head without a lot of thought. And they get into <laughs> trouble sometimes for doing that because they haven't really thought things through because... I'm powerful, I'm confident, whatever I'm thinking is right. So I'm more than happy to say it. Does, um, does either way, so confidence doesn't necessarily uh, increase accuracy. It just increases, you know, action ability, I guess. But, yes, it increases the impact of both good thoughts and bad thoughts, accurate thoughts and inaccurate ones. Does, is there, is there, uh, does anger increase what increases the likelihood of getting better data, more information? I mean, it seems like because confidence, it almost seems like humility is what we also need. But we end up just acting with confidence, not humility and confidence. Is that possible? Yeah. So humility, uh, ironically, doubt is what leads you to try to gain more information, right? So if I have doubts about things, that's why yeah. I need more information. If I'm confident, then I don't need any more information. No, you've got everything you need. Right. Wow. Ambivalence, another thing. If I sort of see two sides to something, then I need to get more information to see which side is the dominant one. If I have to make a decision and there are two sides, then I have to think more about it to decide which side's the right one. If I only see one side, I don't need to think any further. I right. can just go with my side. Well, and how confusing to be a candidate thinking everybody loves you when really they just hate the other person. (laughs) (laughs) And then you're confident, but you're confident without power, really. I mean, I guess, well, power is a weird word, but you're you're confident without a a true appreciative following. Yeah, and in an election where there are so many candidates, or at least there have been, just just liking one isn't enough. You have to kind of like somebody. Yeah, sure. You need to know who to support to uh, counter the person you really despise. Um, yeah. Wow, Richard, this has got to be uh, a crazy time for you. As as I as I just look at it, I, I've never just broken it down in this um, this interesting of a way. Anger 
is driving us and it becomes a major confidence builder, but it's that's different than support. I guess this is then why we have so many negative ads because negative ads, I guess, just fester movement and anger. And they drop <clears throat> draw people to the polls, right? Yeah, sadly. Because <clears throat> poor John Kasich's problem, I suppose. No, no. That, in fact, yeah, coming thing. from Ohio, exactly. I mean, really, yeah, because you can't even get his message out because nobody hates him enough. Right, right. And so it, it's not going to work. Now, maybe if you hate the other person really a lot and you have to stop Trump, maybe you could go to you know, mm-hmm. somebody that you really, really like more than others. Uh, but it all begins with that being inspired by who I have to stop. Yeah. And you see it more and more. Cruz is relying on that quite a bit. The entire Republican establishment, we have to stop a certain candidate so go out and vote for somebody else. Right. And for a while it was like, we don't even care who it is. <laughs> if it's in this state, vote for this person. In some other state, vote for some other person. Because the motivation is really to stop person X. Mm-hmm. So vote for Y, Z, or W. We don't care. Oh, wow. Let's take a break. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Richard Petty from Ohio State University, and he's walking us through what the drivers, really, what drive people to political activism, to political action, and uh, apparently anger. And uh, knowing or believing strongly that you're right is what breeds the confidence. But does it breed the best politics? We'll uh, continue this this discussion with Dr. Petty. Stick with us, folks. Helping you uh, understand leadership 101. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. I really do think it's important to once again go back to the idea that we need to step into other people's shoes so that this world becomes a little bit safer and a little bit more understandable. We fear what we do not know. And that's where I think books really have the capacity and the power to save us and to turn us into much better people. Step into other people's shoes on Worlds Awaiting, Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio. Talk about good. The Utah Shakespeare Festival is more than just a show. They do present Tony Award-winning theater, but there are also interactive green shows to entertain before the plays. There are also seminars to learn how costumes and props are put together. You can also witness what goes on backstage and see the crew change the stage and lighting for the next performance. The Utah Shakespeare Festival is located on the campus of Southern Utah University in Cedar City. More information at bard.org. everybody to the Matt Townsend show. Now uh, we're talking politics, right? But more importantly, we're talking about political, maybe movement, political activism. Um, And really what it comes down to is your confidence level. And according to the research of our uh, friend, Dr. Richard Petty from Ohio State University, he is, uh, has been teaching us that angry People or people that are are angry about something are more likely to act and feel confident to act and to go maybe vote or or move against an issue or a political party or a political whatever. So it's the anger that tends to be the big driver, not necessarily all of the other positive traits that you might love or like in a in a politician. So we we wanted to welcome him back, Dr. Richard Petty. Thanks again for being with us today. 
You're welcome. And educating us is is this is this anger issue? Is this confidence issue? Do do you notice? Is it any different between the parties? Does one party tend to use more anger to move than another party? Um, I, I haven't studied you know how much anger is out there. I think uh, stereotypically, I'd probably have the same answer that uh, you do. But some candidates on the Democratic side, Bernie Sanders, get angry about Wall Street. Right. right. So, so I think anger is used in different ways, and you're angry at different things. On, on both sides of the aisle. Does, does this talk... And he's being very successful, right? He's, right? he's driving people the same, the angry people, people angry about something. They're mad. they got to stop something. They're the ones who... Uh, and the attacks on Hillary Clinton from his side are increasing, right? So really, sort of this... The, playbook. This is just motivation, I guess, 101. If you want to motivate a group of people, find something that you can unite them to be angry about. Yes. So anger isn't the only way that the key, you know, it's it's make them sure that their side is right. Right. Make you feel like I am totally confident. So some positive things like making your side feel empowered is another way to motivate people with confidence. And that's a positive way. Make them feel like we we have control of our destiny. But it's a positive way of instilling confidence. Anger works, too. Hmm. um, And maybe it's a little easier to use in the political context than making people feel empowered. In fact, but the problem is people don't feel empowered, and that's why they are They're angry. Angry, exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, it seems like when President Obama ran, he did kind of use more of the empowered model, right? Like, we can do this. Yes, we can. It was more yeah. about power of opportunity and the ability to do it. And then maybe, I mean, I don't know, maybe that's fell through for a lot of people, which is why we see the anger. Hmm. Yeah, and the campaign wasn't trying to use anger then, right? Right. Uh, that, that was more... Things are terrible in the country, right? 2008, the economy had collapsed, and so you were looking for a uniter at that point in time because it was more fear than anger. Mm -hmm. And like you taught us earlier, fear just is kind of more of a doubtful mindset, but anger is one that makes us feel right and we lead to being more confident. Yeah, fear can make you think. So let me see what's the best solution. Let me think because I'm fearful, I'm doubtful, we have to solve something, I'm not sure what's right, let me process carefully. Um, anger is, hey, our side is right. I know what the right thing is to do. Stop those other people and, and get my guy in. Yeah. Control. I guess, can you take um, anger too far? I mean, is there a point where people don't, they, they actually just believe that you are just stirring the pot? Yeah. So we see some of that, you know, boiling over into violence that occurred at some of these rallies. Because if you feel like your side is so right, that means the other side is so wrong, you're going to just, you know, punch them. Mm-hmm. Because that's how angry you are. It's certainty, a sort of a messianic certainty and confidence is at the root of terrorism. Yeah. People feel like it's my way or the highway. And, and so if you're that's the most extreme example of overconfidence and, you know, feeling like your group is uh, being attacked by others. And so you're really mad about that. And so it leads to the most extreme forms of, of violence, beheadings and so forth, because you think you are so right. And when you're so right and you have no doubts at all about your position, you're not going to listen to anybody else. Yeah. Can that be turned? I mean, how do you turn somebody that is so incredibly confident and acting on it, but they're acting on it out of anger instead of, you know, real logic or yeah, evidence? To that point in, in terrorists, there's probably not much you can do to change those individuals. And right. so you have to get people before they, uh, which is what, you know, people are trying to do now is talk to people and inoculate them. Uh, before they get to the point of being so certain. And it's good to teach a healthy skepticism, right? It's yeah. not good to feel like 
our side is right. But but politicians, unfortunately, in our country are that there are a few who say, you know, it's okay to compromise and work with others and so forth. But there are just far too many who feel like, you know, it's my side's the right and I'll do whatever it takes to get my side right, which we then see means nothing much is going to happen because you have two sides that each think they're right and you can't compromise because that's a dirty word. Right. And then we're stuck in the mire, right? Just. Yep. I mean, when we, and we saw that. We even saw it, I guess, the Republicans coming straight out and saying, we're not going to allow Obama to get any legislation through or whatever. We're going to make him a one-term president. I mean, I guess at some point, you, you have to be open to data. And if you're not open to data and you're just stuck in your your confident anger fit, then I guess it's over. Yeah, the, I think the ultimate only solution is finally, at some point, some people will feel like if each side, let's say this time, run an extremely polarized candidate, then who knows what's going to happen, right? Right. But if one side runs a very polarized candidate, whether it's on the liberal side, let's say the Democrats run an extreme uh, liberal and the uh, Republicans somehow come up with a more moderate person, and one will say, does the liberal candidate get killed, which is what most polls would say right. would happen. Or if you run a really, really conservative candidate and a more moderate, moderate. person on the Democratic side, the extreme conservative will get killed. Yeah. Uh, like back in the Barry Goldwater uh, days where it was on the – right, they got killed, or the George McGovern days where the left got killed, right? Mm. And it was after that that all of a sudden, whichever party got killed realizes, oh, this the pop- population just isn't with us. We're not right. Yeah. Right. And so right now, each side thinks, we're right. You get this false consensus idea, another psychological principle. People overestimate the number of people who are on their side. Uh-huh. And the more right you feel, the more angry you are, the more convinced you become that there are more people. So you really think, we're going to win. But we have elections. No, exactly. So well, happens. isn't that interesting? Because that really is the primary process, right? So we, we get we, – it's almost like we go stir the pot and get angry and overestimate, and then we bring them to the general election, and somebody's going to be embarrassed. And, and all of a sudden, people start paying attention. So e- even in the primaries, you know, so by saying record turnout, we've really just gone from like 20 or 30 percent of people voting to 50 percent voting. So yeah. there's still a ton of people out there who still aren't paying attention. And it would take a lot. I mean, in a way, that's, I guess, one odd benefit of having an extreme candidate maybe like Trump is it is getting people to listen, even if it just angers them. I mean, it's yeah. doing something. It, it's it, it, it's going to create movement, but it doesn't necessarily create healthy movement. That's true. That's crazy. you got to look at this like – I mean, but this is just basic psychology, right? I mean, a similar this you could see this not just on a mass level, but on a personal level. Two kids in the yard. Yeah, the one who's right will be the one motivated to do the uh, stuff to get their point of view across. One thing that's kind of interesting that we haven't talked about yet is why is it that bad is more motivating and action oriented than good? Yeah, right? when something bad's going to happen, and we don't know this for sure, but. Uh, uh, psychologists speculate that it's because basically the world is pretty good, right? And so uh, most days are pretty nice. And so when the bad day comes along, that's when we have to do something, hmm. right? We have to board up our windows because the hurricane's coming. Most of our n- people in the world are pretty good. Yeah. Uh, imagine if we lived in a world where most days were tornadoes. We'd already have our you know, windows boarded up and so forth. And then all of a sudden it'd be like, oh, tomorrow's going to be a beautiful day. And you'd think, oh, I have to do something. I can take down the boards from my windows, and I can go outside. And then you'd get into an action orientation to do something different. And so 
some have speculated that we've evolved to just go into action mode when something bad happens because that's the unusual thing that we have. Right, to do. the anomaly, huh? The, the anomaly. So when an anomalies happen, you got to do something to see what it's all about and to get your attention. It's that, that means this, we don't live in a world where everything's bad. But yeah. This mentality then is because of our success. In general, yeah. So most of the time, things. most of our presidents have been fine, good. Right? So all of a sudden, and, and the country is the most successful country in the history of countries. Right. So we're so good that if something bad is going to happen to this wonderful country, we really have to stop it. So that, that's what gives us the motivation to stop something bad from happening. Hmm. And so that's why bad, again, is in this stopping it compared to good. Another good president, we've had a lot. Yeah. I mean, and again, we're, we're doing pretty well. I mean, even in even economically compared to Europe and other places in China, I mean, we're doing we're doing okay. Um, talk, talk about uh, what we could do just as a family, as a person, as a parent. What do I do to kind of mitigate that paradigm, that tendency to look for the bad and be more active on the bad? I think the the first step in, in almost any kind of issue like this is becoming aware of it, right? And so people can start. In the context of talking to another family member, instead of attacking another family member who supports a candidate you don't like and you get into this argument, sort of start to talk about what the reasons are behind it. And and if people began to feel like, oh, it is anger that's driving me. Is that what I want to drive my Hmm. behavior in this case, anger? And what am I really angry about? You know, sometimes the anger has been trumped up, like you said. Uh, we're made to feel like, oh, the economy's terrible, the country's falling apart, because that's what the candidates say. They try to outcompete each other in saying how bad things are. Yeah. Right? And uh, economists and others will say, well, wait a minute, look at the facts. The unemployment's pretty good, and the dollar's strong, and job, et cetera. And so try to think about what is it you're really angry about. Right? That's great advice. It'll be hard for people to come up with it. It's like, because things are terrible, and you mm-hmm. okay, things are terrible. I know you've been told that. What is it that's so terrible? Yeah, because for most well, people, they may not even feel it's terrible until, I guess, they watch the news and see how terrible it is. Right, the military is falling apart. You go, no, wait a minute. Think of it. Like, why do you say that? Are yeah. you just repeating what someone says, or, or do you have information about that? Yeah, that's true, huh? I mean, I guess that's that's talk radio, too. I mean, a lot of talk radio is has, has very angry, confident hosts that um, – that tend to just tell their message, and that tends to, I guess, create an angry, confident following. Yeah, I know your show is not like that, man. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you have a show where people think the world is falling apart, then I have to listen every day yeah. right, to try to figure out what to do. Yeah, this is. I think it's fascinating. What? Where are you going to take the research next, Richard? Well, we're very interested. Uh, again, not we're interested in elections too, to some extent, but it's just one area in which the whole idea of of confidence makes a difference, and so we're trying to look at other sources of confidence besides emotions. What are some, as you mentioned earlier, some positive things about confidence? When confidence might make you take a step back as opposed to just being action-oriented. And Mm. so we have a little evidence that, um, you know, powerful people just say what's in their head and they just go forward. But that's when their thoughts are univalent, just one-sided. And so if all of a sudden you can get a powerful person to believe they're both sides and then you make them more confident, that's when 
a confident person takes a step back because now they're sure that there are two sides. Right? So you yeah. just sort of think about that. Now I'm sure there are two sides, so now I'm sure I have to take a step back to try to solve things. And so the first step might be to get people to recognize a little bit about the other side, and then confidence might work in our favor. Wow. No, and yeah. Mike, imagine if you said, I am really angry that you're just jumping and going forward without thinking about something. Uh-huh. Get angry about that. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's almost like it's informed anger and confidence versus uh, believed informed anger and confidence. It's actually having the confidence to, to not act and to, yes. and to educate more and inform more and understand more. Yeah, starting to become sure, if you could become sure that sure. compromise is the right thing, or be sure that there are two sides to most issues. Yeah. Ah, so that's cool. Okay, when are you going to have that done, Richard? We've got to have you back on on that. Okay, we're working on it right now. All right, we'll be watching for it. Dr. Richard Petty, we appreciate you and, uh, and your great work there at the, we've got to say the, Ohio State University. Thanks, Richard. Uh, my university will appreciate that. Thank, thank you thank very you. much. <laughs> Keep up the great work. Man, um, isn't that powerful? Powerful insight into you. So think about that. You. Forget everyone else. You. Are you driven more by this anger? Are you driven more by fear? How, how are you being played in this, in this election process? What are you hearing that makes you know that you don't like Trump or you hate Trump or you hate Cruz or you hate Secretary Clinton? What's driving that in you? You know? We can talk about all the other crazies. When it comes down to it, it's us, right? You and me. What do I feel? Where did I get my information from, like Dr. Petty was saying? Where do you get your thoughts like that? Powerful, powerful stuff. We will take a break, folks. Come back. uh, Wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We're learning, aren't we? One guest at a time. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the intensity, it's going to keep driving the, the, the differences here. We don't like... Our candidates, I think overall, nobody is so enthralled with either candidate. So then there's a there's more information about Clinton's documents that are going to be released, and that drives more mistrust. So more hatred against Clinton and plus her conspiracy that she's got tuberculosis or whatever. And then on the other side, the Donald Trump thing where everybody just thinks he's crazy. And yet we're going to get major turn out at the polls and some people are like, yeah, we're also going to have a marijuana initiative on the ballot because that's going to help create turnout. Well, so yeah, tur- turnout for the burnout. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway. Hey, uh, it, it really, and it's not just in politics that we have kind of good cop, bad cop, that we have good, healthy, you know, candidate, unhealthy candidate. It's even taking place at SeaWorld. Apparently a dolphin, which you think would just be a good good thing and a beautiful animal, just a neat little squeaky animal. Apparently there's a, there's a dangerous one there, an angry one, because a dolphin snatches an iPad from a woman as she's taking photos at SeaWorld. The woman trying to take a picture of the dolphin at SeaWorld 
with her iPad, apparently got too close because the dolphin came up, snatched the device right out of her hand, and you can see the video shot by another park goer as her her iPad falls into the water. She quickly grabs it, and uh, she retrieves it, right? So it's all good. That doesn't sound like Flipper. He would never do that. Yeah. No, no, no. So Flipper's the good one. But one of my favorite comedians ever, Brian Regan, talked about what about the alter ego of Flipper? Zipper. Zipper! (laughs) Big scar across his head. I'm moving safety buoys around. (laughs) Deal with that, Flipper! Deal with that, Flipper! Then, uh, this is the worst moment ever. A voice then comes over the loudspeaker at SeaWorld saying, As you can see, the dolphins can reach your loose items. Thanks, Sherlock! It's always embarrassing when they call you out. The lady's lucky that Zipper didn't drag her in and hold her underwater. She's also lucky she didn't lose her iPad. Now, that would have been a tragedy. Okay, we'll take a break. That's hour number one of the show. When we come back, more fun, more ideas to help you uh, live longer, lead healthier, happier lives. We're going to be talking about meetings. If you hold a meeting at work, how do you make sure you uh, capitalize on all the time spent? Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you lead healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. This is the program where we give you the information you need for your life to live a healthier, happier life. Sure, we'll get into the news But uh, the reality is some of the news you just don't need and some other information you need a lot more, but you never get it. We'll we'll give it to you all. Everything you need. And then some things you don't. But they're funny. So we will uh, be sharing some of the fun stories with you today. In fact, we're going to be talking about meetings. How many times have you gone to a meeting and then thought, that's not going to matter? Everyone. Yes. (laughs) Now, that was a rhetorical question. I believe I have one tonight. You have a meeting tonight. Yes. So today will be perfect because Mm -hmm. we will have a guest on teaching you how to make sure you take advantage of the meeting and how to make sure you end the meeting so you have takeaways. But isn't this from the the standpoint of the person holding the meeting? Well, right, except... So when I go to this meeting, I will see all the errors. uh Uh-huh. And you have a voice. So you could say, hey... um, Meeting leader, I learned something on my show today that was really interesting. Yeah, that person's always accepted in a crowd. <laughs> You're doing it wrong. You seem to doubt that you could impact a meeting. There's like 90 people in this meeting. I don't really want to stand out. In fact, when are we going to have a meeting? That's the other problem. I haven't been able to have a meeting since our staff has uh, varied schedules. They're all over yeah. the place. Not sure when everyone's going to be here. Most people leave. The three the of us over. meet every day. At least for a minute. Well, four L and Sadie. Well, she leaves at ten. Yeah, Sadie, but Sadie's got that really good social life. Yeah, she has things to do. She's popular. I've been holding meetings every day, but it's just been me. Is it a meeting if you hold it by yourself? That's why it's called a meeting. Me meeting ting. Oh, so you just ting, but you're tinging by yourself. Mm. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Very productive. Are they productive meetings? Yeah. 
Yeah, I get a lot done. In fact, I walked by and looked in the window and you were yelling at yourself in the meeting. That was weird. It was a pep talk. <laughs> you got to hold yourself accountable, man. You were pumping yourself up. So we will be talking about meetings today, how to make them more effective. And uh, by the way, from some information on Harvard Business Review, this is a guy that goes and does this for a living, mm. teaches you how to have a good meeting. So you can take that to your group tonight. They'll love it there at AA. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what meeting you're going to. But you, you, By the way, nobody knows how to have a, better, a meeting better than AA. They've you, been doing you, it for years. You don't know what meeting I'm going to, so you go straight to AA. Well, I have to guess. Okay. Just, you know. Yeah. Wanted to point that out. Well, it's obvious. So you've, we've got a bunch of other information we've got to talk about. Um, we will be getting to uh, a crazy story about cockroaches. Mm. And we'll even be talking to an advocate for cockroaches. Nice. Who thinks that they shouldn't be mistreated. We try to get all sides of the story. Yeah. Most people against cockroaches, this person for right. cockroaches. And if you have to rescue a skunk, mm. how to do it? We'll give you uh, some insight on that as well. But first, let's get to the light of the show. Sadie Nielsen with the headline. Sadie? The last surviving victim of the shooting massacre at Pulse nightclub in Orlando was released from the hospital on Tuesday. The individual had been at the hospital since the June 12th shooting. 76 surgeries were performed on 35 shooting victims at the Orlando Regional Medical Center since the horrific event. A judge in Pennsylvania ruled Tuesday that Bill Cosby will go on trial on sexual assault charges next June rather than this fall, as expected. Judge Stephen O'Neill said Cosby's lead defense lawyer is extraordinarily overbooked and the criminal trial stemming from an encounter in 2004 with a Temple University employee has to be moved to June 5th, 2017. ITT Educational Services is shutting down its technical schools in one of the biggest college closures, closures in American history. The company is blaming the Department of Education for demanding $153 million, nearly double ITT's cash on hand and collateral to the government in case ITT suddenly failed. As a result, the for-profit college will close more than 130 campuses and 40,000 students will be left adrift. And finally... Police in Florida said they arrested a woman who was caught on camera setting fire to a car she mistakenly thought belonged to her ex-boyfriend. <laughs> the Clearwater Police Department said Carmen Shambly, 19, was identified by the members of, from the public of a surveillance video showing the woman fanning the flames she allegedly sparked in the trunk of a white car before fleeing. Investigators said Shambly admitted to torching the vehicle and told police she thought the car belonged to her ex-boyfriend. She was arrested on second-degree arson. Oh, boy. You know the rules, don't you, Sadie? Absolutely. Always check the VIN. Always. Always See, But check I don't the have VIN. to worry about that anymore because no. I'm married. Right. It's a beautiful thing. But you have exes. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> Sadie, thanks. Yeah, always check the VIN number. Man, how many times do we have to talk about that on the show? If you're going to torch your ex's car, check the VIN number. Check the plates. I, I, I would check and I would double check. I would check and recheck. <sighs> okay. So where to begin? Let's, I think, start with cockroaches. Did you, when you lived in Russia, Jeffrey, did you have cockroaches? Yes. In fact, uh, we stayed up late one night and we decided to go into the kitchen to get a snack, turn on the light and 
dozens and dozens of cockroaches just scurrying, taking <laughs> cover. And uh, what is a Russian snack? Well, there's, <laughs> I don't think cockroaches like to swim in that too much. Yeah. Um, there's uh, just a lot of nasty meals with cabbage. Mm. And uh, so not a lot of leftovers. You guys, I mean, there's a lot of leftovers, but nobody wants to eat the leftovers. There's plov. Maybe they were going for the plov, which is actually an Armenian dish, a rice dish, which so, I quite liked. Plov? Plov. 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 Terry, didn't you have plov once? And yes, you... I saw a medical professional. They lanced it, and I'm better now. So Always lance the plov. Hey, uh, so how did you get rid of the cockroaches? We we didn't spray. I don't remember spraying. So you just so we just let them be. cohabitated. Yeah. Which is one way to do it. Uh, fire officials in Washington say a resident sparked a small fire in an apartment while trying to kill cockroaches with a homemade flamethrower. Fire crews were called to the apartment on Monday morning after receiving a report of a commercial structure fire. By the time the firefighters arrived, the resident had extinguished the flames. No one was injured. And a preliminary investigation found that the resident was using bug spray and a lighter to kill the cockroaches. I mean, that's seems like overkill. Maybe not with a cockroach. So here's the question. Um, we we wanted to know what are you supposed to do? Because the minute this story came out, a lot of the anti-cockroach or actually pro-cockroach people, what do we call them, um, advocates, started advocating for you don't kill cockroaches. Cockroaches are like animals, pets. You just have to find a kinder, gentler way to handle the cockroaches. And so we went and captured a clip from Veruca Snively about the rights of cockroaches. The general consensus is that cockroaches are dirty, vile creatures that serve no purpose, which our Delaware Insect Sanctuary has refuted again and again. And when I hear stories like this one, it just makes me sick. If you don't want cockroaches in your home, send them to Delaware. Don't torch them. Don't forget that these insects of the Blatodia order have rights just like you and me. Roaches are people, too. What? I think she said roaches are people, too. Well, but they're not. They're roaches. Blatodia order? Blatodia. That's crazy. Boy, Delaware's you know for a world of trouble now. You know, but on the other side of this, there are a lot of people that are very anti-cockroach. If you can believe that. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Most people I know are anti-cockroach, and a lot of people are actually backing this guy for for torching them. Yeah, yeah. I, I think. Yeah, I've never met somebody that was pro-cockroach. That this was... message brought to you by Bernie Sanders supporters for the extermination of cockroaches. Roaches. Feel the burn. Cool. So now they can't back Bernie Sanders anymore. Yeah. So they're backing the extermination of cockroaches. Feel the burn. That's cool. That's a great line. Kind of wish Bernie was back in the game. He was fun. So if you if you we didn't get the number, but if apparently you can take your cockroach hotel or motel, uh, fill it up with cockroaches 
and then just ship it off to Delaware? No, because then they would show up dead. I wouldn't put them in a roach motel first. Okay. Because once you check in, you can't check out of the roach motel. That's a great point. So maybe just a shuttle bus, a roach shuttle. And have the cockroaches put food in there, and then all the cockroaches go in the shuttle bus, and then just ship the bus to. Don't do the. I didn't think of that. You'll, you don't want. To, you don't want them to die. Yeah. Feel the burn. I did not know Bernie Sanders was into this either. This is crazy. You'd think this would be more of a Green Party thing, but. What do I know? Uh, if you also are having problems with skunks, this uh, is another little helpful tip from the Matt Townsend Show. Rescuing a skunk uh, isn't a paramedic's job normally. Justin Mouse's job, uh, he was a paramedic that showed up at his Toronto area workplace Sunday morning and saw one in the parking lot, a skunk in the parking lot with a plastic cup stuck on its head. By the way, this is the second animal, vermin, that we saw that one had a Yoplait cup, uh, a squirrel did. That made great video. And now we have a skunk with a, with a cup on its head. So what are you supposed to do when you've got a skunk with a cup on its head? Now, I think we actually captured audio. Did we at the scene? Well, didn't he get in a suit of some kind? Yeah, or? he wore a – he basically – they have a – kind of an Ebola suit that they wear, a white suit that they put on for hazardous materials. He got all geared up in his uniform, uh, taped himself up, had his rubber gloves on, doing everything he can to make sure that he wasn't going to be sprayed by the skunk as he went over to help him out. Uh, My great bundle of sweetness. Is love, love, love at sight first. No? Oh, I've heard of the skunk. No, yes. Oh, she made rush of hot blood to the temples. Mm-hmm. Ah, golden girl, you are the corn beef to me. Yeah, I've heard that skunk before. I couldn't tell if it was the skunk or if that was actually the guy, the paramedic, talking to the skunk, you beautiful girl. I'm going to kiss you. And he started kissing the skunk. I couldn't. It's hard to tell because he had his mask on. You couldn't see who was talking. And the skunk had a cup on his head. I think it would be less creepy if it was the skunk talking. Yeah. That's that, that voice I've heard. That is the voice of a skunk. I mean, if you've ever heard the voice of a skunk, you'll never forget it. Yeah. Pepe Le Pew. So two little helpful little hints for you today. If you have to get a skunk... You better dress up in your white uh, hazmat suit. It's one way to do it. By the way, he did finally free the skunk from of the cup. And now the cup uh, has been thrown away, as it should be appropriately, and the skunk is now a pet to the fire department. No more Dalmatians at that station, just a skunk sitting on the front seat. And also, if you have a homemade uh, flamethrower... Don't use it to kill cockroaches. Instead, put your cockroaches in a box or a bucket and send them off to Delaware. Not a roach motel. Not a roach motel because that will then terminate those poor cockroaches. Also, uh, Bernie Sanders, a lover of or a hater, I guess, of cockroaches and feel the burn. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're talking about meetings, how to make them more effective, how to make sure when you walk away from a meeting that you uh, that you actually leverage 
all the time you've just spent. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, As we go through life, we've got a lot of meetings we attend. And they could be meetings from community meetings, church meetings, family. You know, you might have a family meeting once in a while. And at business, it's pretty much the name of the game. Meetings, meetings, meetings. In fact, even sometimes you'll see a sports team uh, of one of your children. Once they finish the game, they usually gather, you know, on the sidelines or near the sidelines and they talk about what happened during the game. Uh, but have you ever wondered if those meetings in the end, are they really very effective? And are the meetings that you attend very effective? The same uh, ideas that uh, we use in our businesses to make them more effective would, would also impact the rest of our meetings that we attend. A post-quick meeting wrap-up may be the answer for a lot of us to to actually capitalize on the time we've already spent. Joining us to talk about uh, meetings and uh, how to end a meeting to make sure that we actually do something with what we've just spent our time talking about is Bob Frisch. He is one of the world's leading strategic facilitators. He's also the author of the book, uh, Who's in the Room? How Great Leaders Structure and Manage Teams Around Them, and is a a writer for Harvard Business Review and has written many articles there. Bob, thank you so much for being with us today. Good morning. How are you this morning? Excellent, excellent. Good to have you on the show. Now, Bob, do you love a good meeting? Or when you think I've got to go to a meeting, what do you think? Well, I have to tell you, Malcolm Gladwell said it takes 10,000 hours to master something. Yeah. And because of what I do for a living, I've spent a lot more than 10,000 hours (laughs) in other people's meetings. And uh, they're uh, they're an art form. They're the I think of them very much as the forum within which business gets conducted, or or nonprofits or government work. But we really make progress by meeting with other people. That's how people come together. It's how ideas get spread. It's how compromises get made. It's how decisions get made. So meetings are one of the most important things that a person can do in the course of their career and something a lot of people don't spend a lot of time about. My partner Carrie and I at our firm sort of obsess about meetings. We think a lot about what makes a good meeting. And we found it to be a a, a nice topic. A lot of people want to hear more about how to make their meetings more effective. You two have written so many articles um, about meetings that on Harvard (laughs) Business Review, I sit here and I think, really, we, we spend thousands of hours in a meeting, and yet we don't even necessarily tie down our learnings, our best practices. A lot of us have never even been trained in holding a meeting. Well, I think in many companies, I don't think anybody's going home at night saying our meetings are lousy. Yeah. But I think they are hopelessly (laughs) suboptimized. I think people feel like, gee, I expected to get more than I did. And so that's the problem that, you know, Carrie and I now for about 30 years, 15 years in this room, about 30 years of my career, I have decided that I am going to obsess about how to make meetings better. Hmm. And uh, Harvard Business Review is quite receptive to that. They sort of consider us their meeting experts. So we write about the topic, we blog about the topic, and our consulting firm, Strategic Offsites Group, focuses on the most important meetings that are held in many companies during the year, which is the strategy offsites of the executive teams and the boards. Hmm. And, and you go in and facilitate those? Is that what you do? 
We facilitate them, but more importantly, we spend somewhere between a month and three months designing them. Oh, wow. Uh, there's an old joke about consultants that their folks are who will borrow your watch and then charge you to tell you the time. <laughs> we borrow everybody's watch before the meeting, and we'll say, look, these folks think it's 3 o'clock. These folks think it's 2 o'clock. These folks are in a completely different time zone. <laughs> we walk in having done surveys, interviews, other diagnostics, so we know pretty much what are the most important issues and what are the thoughts of the people in the room before the meeting starts. So rather than spend half the meeting teasing out who thinks what, we spend a lot of time before meetings understanding that and then using the meeting to get the group aligned around an answer. And that, that seems like the principle, right, is uh, planning. And and you you end up then helping to do a lot of the planning, the thinking, the, or, the orchestrating, um, and and then so pre planning seems like a critical part of it, and then I guess sticking to the plan is a critical part of it. One of the things we we found in one of your articles about was about how you end a meeting. Yeah, uh, talk about ending meetings, and you in in the article you you mention about sports teams. And how, you know, how they kind of do, a, I guess, a post-mortem, a lot of military, you know, special forces teams, I guess any military uh, team would also do post-mortems as well. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a regular feature. So, so going back to your earlier comment, I mean, you know, Covey once said to, to begin with the end in mind. Right. Very, very often people go into a meeting and say, well, what's this meeting for? Oh, we're going to talk about the company picnic. No, no, no. At the end of this meeting... What will we have debated, decided, discussed, discovered at the end that we don't know right now? What are we actually getting together to do? So many meetings have a topic, but they don't necessarily have a purpose. Mm. And so obviously the purpose of a football game is to win. Um, That one's easy. Um, But there are certain things I'm sure that every team intends to do when they walk onto the field. They've been thinking about the game. They've been watching game films. they, they They have a game plan. At the end, before everybody gets in their Ferraris and drives home, if it's a professional football team, um, they, they always spend a few minutes in the locker room. Even my, my kids, you know, high school baseball team. Right. Before they leave the field, the coach brings them over. They shake the other team's hand. Coach brings them over, spends five or ten minutes, talks to the team, and then they go see mom and dad and get driven home. It, it, you know, it's a, it's a natural course of many, many teams to either debrief what just happened, make sure there's no bruised feelings, um, take some lessons away before they leave the field. They wrap it up. Very often with business meetings, somebody looks at their watch, the meeting was scheduled 9 to 10, it's 10 o'clock, got another meeting, fold my notebook, and you leave. And, And they don't bother taking literally one or two minutes to actually end the meeting properly. And we found a little bit of discipline. Again, one of the things we've looked at is how do you end a meeting? So we wrote, did a little piece for Harvard. Uh, you know, don't don't end a meeting before you do these three things. But in our mind, a meeting should have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Many, many meetings in many organizations just have a middle. Mm. You jump into a conversation you've already had 15 times. You kind of spin it around the 16th time. Time's up. Go off. And nothing really gets accomplished. And if it did get accomplished, it wasn't documented, it wasn't agreed to, nothing gets done. We find a little bit of discipline at the end of the meeting saying, okay, it's five minutes at 10, meeting ends at 10, let me spend five minutes wrapping up the meeting. Everybody understands what we've discussed, decided. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
And and before we go on our way, let me just spend a couple of minutes wrapping up the meeting, then we'll be out of here on time. Hmm. And that couple of minutes of less discussion time, more wrap-up time, adds enormously to the productivity of the meeting. Yeah, beginning, middle, end. It sounds like a lot of times the middle is more like a muddle, right? <laughs> Where we just, we're just throwing everything around and it's kind of going nowhere. Well, you know, it's funny. The dangerous thing about this discussion is most people will say, well, that's common sense. Yeah, Everybody, you know, duh. But think back to the last five meetings you've been to. Did you do that? When uh. you had media, I, I don't want to say anything about the organization you work for, but when you get together with your, your, your team, your colleagues, your boss, whatever, is this a natural thing that happens? And the answer is in most companies it doesn't. It's very logical, and it's, it's not complicated. People just don't do it. Is there, now, it seems like then there's kind of a human nature, there's a human reason why we don't do it. Is it, a, is it we don't want to tie down accountability? What, what is it that would make us muddle it up so much in the middle and then leave without anybody clearly knowing what we're doing? What's, what, why does that happen? I think it's habit. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we do work for a, a very large chemical company, and we're, we're in the headquarters building. We're not in the plant. We're in the headquarters building. Every single meeting, somebody gets up and says, let me discuss the exit from this room. And they'll tell you, in case of an emergency, we go down the hall, you go 15 feet to the right, there's an emergency stairs. If that's blocked, you go 20 feet to the left. You know, et cetera, et cetera. Huh. They give the actual egress instructions. Why? Because chemical companies are very, very safety conscious. Every meeting of every group at every facility everywhere in the world starts with a safety briefing. That's just habit. Huh. And they do, and and you, when you start to instill it in, it becomes. When I first did, it's like I'm in an office tower. How do I need to know where the elevator? Like, I've, what's going on here? And they said, no, Bob, this is what we do here. Every meeting starts with this. And they've so built it into their routine, it's absolute second nature to them. And, and I think wrapping up meetings well is second nature to me, and the clients we've worked with tend to automatically revert to it. I think if you start doing it in a couple of months, this, this is how meetings end around here. And, and, and there's three things, as we wrote in the piece that you yeah. mentioned, there's three specific things we recommend as the three habits to start with that will really help to drive that productivity. In fact, let's, um, let's actually do this. Let's take a break and come back and have you go through those three things uh, sure. that are the keys to the wrap-up. And I guess these all take place, Bob, like in the last five minutes of a if meeting? That. If, if that. that, yeah. Okay, if awesome. That. We'll uh, continue the discussion. Stick with us, folks. We're speaking with Bob Frisch. You can go uh, look out and find more up uh, about to Bob at Strategic. Offsites.com, strategicoffsites.com. Interesting insights about your meetings, folks. You have a beginning, the typical muddle, and then the end. <laughs> when you're supposed to have a typical middle, we'll get to all of that. More with Bob Frisch when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Okay, well, before we get started, you should know that there are five different styles of conflict. My Shaolin Temple style defeats your monkey style. Can we go? I have a lot of work to do. Nope. Nobody could hold a meeting better than Michael Scott on The Office. 
I hope that's not true. Our guest today uh, would probably have an argument with that. Bob Frisch joins us. He is a writer for HBR, Harvard Business Review. He and his partner at strategicoffsites.com. They're experts in meetings and also really more than that, organizational design, offsite facilitation, consulting, strategy design. And uh, Bob joins us today to talk us through an article he wrote uh, that was titled, Don't End a Meeting Without Doing These Three Things. He's helping us understand that every meeting needs a beginning, a middle, and an and a end, the close of the meeting. And he's going to walk us through what are the three most important things we all do in the last few minutes of a meeting. Bob, thank you so much for being with us again. It's a pleasure. Talk about your uh, the three key things. So let's say we, we've had a meeting, we've been in there for our 55 minutes, and really, you need to go Google, everybody needs to go Google, Bob Frisch and HBR. Harvard Business Review, and it would get it'll get you to a page that has probably I don't know ten articles. I don't know how many are on them, twenty or something. I think, but one of them, Bob, is also about standing meetings. There's a lot of new rules about how to make a meeting more valuable um, that we won't have time to talk about today. Talk about the last couple minutes as we wrap up a meeting. Sure. And by the way, it may not be just an hour meeting. It could be a half day meeting, right. a full day meeting, a multi day meeting. You know, if it's a 10-minute stand-up meeting at the beginning of the day, it's one thing. But if a, if a group of people is getting together to meet on a topic, the first thing is at the end to confirm any decisions that were made or next steps agreed to. So roll the clock back from the very start and say, okay, what we've agreed to is we're going to go with plan A, not plan B. Mary, Bill, and Betty are going to go off and look at this. They're going to come back next week, and they're going to report on X. Very specifically, just remind people, here's what was decided today, here's, here's the next steps. Not a recap of, let me take you through what we just did. Mm-hmm. But any key decisions, things that have come to closure, next steps, you should go ahead and just recap those so people understand who's going to do what by when coming out of the meeting, or here's what this group has agreed to. Sometimes if we do a two, two or three day offsite and there's lots of stuff being discussed, you may not remember at the end of day two what happened the morning of day one. Right. Often we'll build what we call a wall of decisions. As a decision gets made, we put it in a flip chart and put it on a wall. And over the course of a couple of days, there's 10, 15 items up there, things that have been discussed and resolved, and here's what's going to happen now. We simply go over, here's what's going to happen as an outcome of our having gotten together. Who does, so, who's responsible for that, Bob? The, the meeting host? Uh, does the host assign somebody to do these, this review? Well, sometimes it's unclear. Often it is the person who either called the meeting or led the meeting. But if it's a group of peers who meet and there's no natural uh, person to do this, you may say, gee, you know, Bob, will you take care of the recap? Will you scribe the meeting or take care of the recap? Hmm. Make it clear that Bob's now not in charge of the decisions. Simply the person at the end we're going to turn to and say, can you recap what happened here? And maybe write up some a little after a memo. Maybe not. But, but it's very important that you go around and, and simply say, here is the outcome of this meeting. And just remind everybody, because somebody may say, wait a minute, I actually didn't think we committed to have it right. for the next meeting. I thought we were going to have it next month. Yeah. Okay, now we spend a little bit of time and close the loop because it wasn't exactly clear what had been agreed to. So by recapping, anybody has that sort of speak now or forever, you have the ability to simply say, because if nobody speaks up, the assumption is what I'm saying is what we just agreed huh. to. 
Well, and you can see, like you gave the the example from your chemical company, if you made it a habit to take the last five minutes or three minutes recapping, Mm-hmm. And gave a, even gave a chance for everybody on the team eventually to lead the recap so you could train everybody up. This could become a habit. It, it should become a habit. Right. That's the goal. It's happening. <laughs> the, the second habit is if it's a longer meeting. Again, if it's a regular every day we get together for a half hour and talk about inventory, it's one thing. But if it's a meeting that people have been thinking about, that's been planned, your subordinates know that people are going away to talk about topic X – or you've been in the conference room with these folks for four hours, and other people know a meeting is taking place, we then would move and say, what's the communications point? We're not trying to script anybody. We're not telling you what to say. But when we walk out, or you know, if it, it ends on Friday, when we walk into the office Monday morning and, 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 and people say, gee, boss, you, know, you were in Atlanta. You guys met for a couple of days. What happened? Hmm. What are you going to say? What are we all going to say happened here? Because sometimes things are decided that should not go into or are not going to go into public consumption immediately. Let's all agree on a handful of communication points. What are the highlights? What are the three or four or five bullet points that characterize what we did today so that we can communicate it to our subordinates? Again, we're not trying to dictate what people say. Let's just be sure this common messages. So if Mary, who wasn't here, asked three of us what happened, she gets roughly the same story from Mm -hmm. three people, and she's not playing touch the elephant. So what are a couple of communication points? That's a great idea. If we have a larger meeting, if we're getting together with a a, a 12-person executive team or 30 or 40 people, what we'll do is we'll actually text those communication points to the distribution list for the meeting as they're getting in their car walking out of the building. Huh. So they have it on their phone. So if they if they are walking in the office, they say, what are those communication points? Often there's an email or text message from our team if we facilitate the meeting saying, here are the four communication points we all agreed to. Yeah, this and seems it, like uh, this seems like what high, highly organized and and kind of smart communication firms do anyway. It, it's it almost sounds like what a political candidate would do. Uh, but to keep everyone on point, and yet it's just a best practice for a business. Well, but even for something that's lower stakes, let's say we just got together, we're having a rough year, we're not sure if we're going to do the, the, the holiday party again this year or we're going to be giving you know, $25 gift certificates to folks. People know we're meeting it. We were talking about the holiday party. We've decided we're going to wait till next month and see what next month's numbers bring. Is that what we're going to tell folks? Hmm. Are we going to tell folks, you know, we've met on it, we're waiting and seeing, we're going to have everybody will have an answer before Thanksgiving, and we'll let you know what we're doing. Is that what we're all going to say? So just make sure that everybody, and again, we're not asking anybody to fib. Right. Let's just be sure that we're all very consistent about what we're going to communicate to the people who aren't with us right now. And so communication points are often a very important thing because people not in the room are going to be asking what happened. And and so as well as number one, which is what do we actually decide, number two is if people ask us what happened, what are we going to say? Mm. And there it can be a little more, oh, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about this. There was a healthy debate about that. That cannot just be the outcomes. It can also be a little bit of, you know, I don't get together with these people but once a year. It was really terrific just connecting with colleagues, and a lot of the time was spent 
just you know reinforcing the bonds across these three departments. Yeah, that can be a communication point. Totally. And again, it just seems so smart to. It just is another step of everyone on the same page. We're all on the same page. Uh, what was the third one? What's the third key point? So the third one is a little bit, um, a little bit selfish, and this is often done when there is a, a meeting owner, or there is a facilitator, or somebody outside is helping you with the meeting. Um, but even if it's a more informal group of peers, if you only meet on a topic infrequently, we often say, okay, roll this back to the very, very beginning. When you got the meeting notice, the pre-read we sent out, the agenda, the room, the topic, the lunch we brought in, the temperature of the room, anything at all, what should have or could have been different for next time? Hmm. So often people will say, well, next time we meet and we're talking about so-and-so, it really is inappropriate that Fred's not here. So I'll write down, Fred's not here. I'm not going to debate whether the person's right or wrong. I'm simply getting input. Somebody will say, well, you know, there was no vegetarian option at the lunch. No vegetarian option. You know, whatever it may be, as trivial as you may think, people need to think about okay, what would I do differently? What would I like differently? And this is kind of a name of continuous improvement. What should be different next time? If we could re-roll the tape, what would be different? Then you say, what went well? You know, this group yeah. meets, meets four times a year. We, you know, we are the whatever it is committee. What went well? What did you like about the meeting, if anything? Often you don't hear anything at first. You've got to wait a few minutes. But, but people eventually will say, well, you know, we just don't talk very much, and it's good we actually met. Or they'll say, I really like the fact that we got the budget numbers three weeks ago, and I had a chance to talk about them with my team. So I call them uh, pluses and deltas. What do you like? What should change? My partner likes calling them roses and thorns. I hmm. you can imagine why. Um, but various people have various names for this. And, um, and the other good thing is, there is a rule of thumb in psychology, benefits before concerns. Yeah. I don't like that. I like people leaving, having spent a couple of minutes thinking about, what did I like about this meeting? What went well? What should be repeated? It leaves, everybody leaves on a slightly upward note. They're thinking more positively. They want to get back together again. But they have had an opportunity to vent. So if it really bothered somebody that, gee, you know, Bill really should have been here. They have an opportunity to download anything they should see differently, and they have an opportunity to reinforce the things that went well, and then they leave the room. So what was decided? What are the next steps? Yep. What communication points if people outside of this room are going to be curious about what happened? And if it's a longish meeting, say a, a half-day or full-day or multi-day meeting, then we'll do roses and thorns, benefits and concerns. We wouldn't do it for a routine. I wouldn't recommend it for an everyday meeting. But it is good if the group meets infrequently, if it's a larger group or a longer meeting, to do that capture of, and, you know, somebody may have been sitting there freezing for the last four hours, <laughs> and you had no idea they were sitting under an air vent, and they'll say, I've been freezing for four hours. Right. Or, you know, I, I really have had trouble hearing, you really should speak louder. You know, it would have been nice to hear that at the time. Sure. But now I know next time I'm in the room with Mary, I got to sit her in the front or I got to talk louder. <laughs> and bring her a sweater. Um, <laughs> I guess I guess part of this, Bob, is to – and then use your learnings for the next meeting. Make sure you go back and take that feedback and adjust. 
have, you'll say, you know something you'll notice? You're all sitting in leather swivel chairs. The last meeting, there were a couple of comments about the chairs. We made sure that the hotel provided us with nicer seating this time. Yeah. So people say, well, gee, you know, I, I do remember they weren't comfortable. These, you know, they, these, these folks are trying better. Or if you can't do it, you'll say, look, we got some feedback last time that there wasn't enough time with the pre-read. We, we really apologize that we got it out on short notice. But you have to understand, finance really wanted these numbers right. We just couldn't get it out. But we know you were looking for more lead time. I'm sorry we weren't able to provide mm. it. But at least you're acknowledging that you're trying to do the best job you can and responding to the people's needs. What would you say, Bob, as we wrap up? We have about a minute left. What would you say I should do? So just the average kind of employee out there that that doesn't necessarily feel like they can run the meetings. But what can I do as um, as, as an attendee of a meeting to help it along and help it work? Well, I think as we're particularly if we're talking about these closure points, you know, you could say with five minutes to go, you know something? We've talked about a bunch of topics today. Could we just take a minute and recap where we are, what we've decided? Or, you know, I'm going to walk back into the break room, and, and I'm going to have six people ask me what just happened. I know we don't want to talk about possibly canceling the, the company event. What, what do you think we should all say? So people can, from the table, start to bring these closure points forward without saying, you know, we should do this every single meeting. People, you know, if you do feel like maybe Betty over there didn't take away what I think she should have taken away, you can just say, gee, I think I'm not clear. Can we just take a minute and recap what we decided on this topic? Yeah. And once the person restates it, Betty either will say nothing or say, well, we didn't agree to that. And now I know that I'm walking out without closure. There you go. And anybody can offer, I mean, just ask those questions. Absolutely. It's Bob, very safe, very easy. We appreciate you. Keep up the great work in, uh, in all you do. And everybody, go, listen, go read the book, Who's in the Room? How Great Leaders Structure and Manage the Teams Around Them. You can find out more information, again, at Bob's site, strategicoffsites.com. Thanks again, Bob. We'll take a break, folks. Uh, come back to a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you lead healthier meetings. Stick with us. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. If you are one uh, who, hold, who holds meetings and manages and facilitates these meetings, wow, you got to learn. We really struggle, I think, a lot of us, knowing how to hold a meeting you might be really good at what you do. When you think about an engineer might be an incredible you know, person at understanding very detailed information and, and a lot of uh, depth, but maybe start to identify what the meeting is about ahead of time. Figure out what is our goal and have an objective for the meeting. A lot of times we choose the time allotted for the meeting based on how long we can get the meeting room, right? So if I can get a meeting room for a half hour, it's going to be a half hour meeting. If I can get it for an hour, it's going to be a one hour meeting. Is that not a backwards way of trying to decide how long you should hold a meeting? Wouldn't it make more sense to hold a meeting 37 minutes rather than one hour? If you only have 37 minutes of content, but you have the room for an hour, 
You don't have to get every dollar's worth out of your conference rooms. So some of this is pre-planning and and thinking and anticipating. Some of the best meetings, by the way, I've ever been to, they sent out some information for me to read and to prepare for before I went to the meeting. That way I came to the meeting prepared. We will be covering these topics. We would love you to bring three ideas around these areas. And that allowed me to get my head wrapped around the meeting and actually up to speed so I was running, even sprinting ready to be engaged actively in the conversation. Pre-planning could help a lot as well. Uh, We talked a lot about, um, you know, in my day when I was a coach or a consultant with Corporate America about standing meetings. If you usually would take an hour to get through a discussion, one time I went to a company where they didn't have any chairs in their meeting rooms. There were no chairs. All the tables were raised. They were lifted so you they were you could comfortably stand and take notes. But there were no chairs. And amazingly, the meetings were so much shorter and so much more effective. Um, now, you can't necessarily do that, right, if you need to spend four hours in a meeting. But if you have a regular meeting that's uh, happening every day or regularly, it might be smart for you to plan on just letting it be a standing meeting. And I promise you it will go a lot faster. Having an agenda for the meeting is another important idea to make sure you take the plan and uh, institutionalize it. Whenever I would hold a meeting, I'm, I'm a horrible time manager. It's not one of my gifts. It's not one of my fortes. So I would always have the top uh, kind of micromanager in the room be in charge of the schedule. And then I'd find a non-intrusive way that they could prompt me along. Uh, so not to be rude, not to be a jerk. They don't have to throw something at me, but they can just nod and say next or whatever whatever it takes. So make sure you do some pre-work and you're handing out the pre-work. Make sure you have a plan and that we have literally put out there, this is what we are going to try to accomplish in the meeting. Make sure you choose the time that's appropriate and needed. Also, make sure you have an agenda. In the plan, you should be asking other people that will be attending the meeting what should be on the agenda. That could all take place a, a, a week before the event, depending on the type of meeting. Now, for some meetings, you're thinking, I don't, this is overkill. I'm just going to wing it. Okay, fine. Then in the first minute of the meeting, prepare the agenda. What do we need to talk about really quick? What does everybody need to get out? And just go around the horn and let everybody tell you one or two things to put on the agenda and produce the agenda for the first five minutes of the meeting. Then hold the meeting and hold the meeting according to the agenda. Move it along, move it along, move it along. And then the last five minutes would be a healthy wrap-up as Bob Frisch just walked us through. Right? What are the takeaways? What are the, you know, what are the expectations? Again, you don't have to do it. But here's, here's a critical point. If you sit in a meeting all day long and it bores you and it's useless to you, you, I believe, have an obligation to communicate that. One way or another, you have an obligation to give some feedback. It doesn't – you don't have to be a jerk about it. You could just do it anonymously. You could actually take it to somebody that you have influence over, that influences you, that you trust, and that – and I'd give them the feedback. Nobody wants to hold meetings that they think are a waste of time. And nobody wants to attend a meeting that is a waste of time. So don't just chalk it up to, yeah, my bosses just hold boring meetings. If Because it, 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 in the end, you're going to be a boss someday. 
and somebody on your team is going to say, you're the boss that holds the boring meeting, watch out because the habit of your bosses become your habits. The best managers I ever saw, the best bosses I ever saw, they managed their meetings. They didn't waste the time of their employees, but they also, they never feared away or were afraid of the meetings either. They didn't steer away from them. Anyway, a little coach's corner for you. Basic rules and tools for a healthy uh, a healthy conversation. And then we, of course, we always want follow-up. We always want feedback. And our feedback should be addressed in the next meeting as well. We'll talk about it, folks. Uh, continue listening to us. More ideas, more information to help you lead healthier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hour number three of the program. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Hope you're having a great morning. I'm telling you, you only get so many mornings in your life. So you got to make this one a good one. That was inspiring yet obvious. Well, yeah, but you've never said that. Too obvious. Just some, but too obvious. (laughs) And yet we all blow a morning. Like what'd you do yesterday morning? I came to work. See? Blew it. What did you do the week before? <laughs> Blew it. Came to work. See? That's what I do. You've only got so many. You have a finite amount of mornings. And every one that you hate, it's just another one down the drain. How could you hate a morning when it's salami day? Today we're celebrating meat. Salami is cured fermented air-dried sausage, mm. popular in Italy and the Mediterranean. Fermented air-dried sausage. Salami Day encourages you to explore the world of salami. So someone let their let, let their meat product just sit out in the sun. Yeah. And over a period of time, so it ferments, uh-huh. and then it needs to air-dry, yeah. and then they went, well, I guess I'll just eat that. Mm-hmm. And they didn't die. And now we have salami. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because there's so many foods that when you let it sit out in the sun... For a long period of time, and then you go try to consume it, it's, it's going like to jerky. kill you. You turn it into jerky. Do you ever have that moment of panic when you come down to the kitchen, you realize you've left a pizza out for a couple of hours, and you try to decide what to do with it? Oh, you eat it. There's no just, – you just I you nuke pizza, it yeah. and you eat it. That's the neat thing about pizza. You could leave it out for the night. My wife and I – my wife cooked a lasagna. Mm. She left it on top of the stove to cool. Then we forgot about it. Right, so you come back. How do you forget about a meal? She just, she just didn't. We ate the 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 portion that we had at that point. You had the rest of it, right? Yeah. And so we went to bed. She went to work. I came back the next day about one o'clock. Walked in the kitchen and went, "Wow, lasagna." Hmm. So I called her and I go, "How long did you? Can you let lasagna just sit in the open air? Yeah, and it won't kill you. Did it have salami in it? No. Uh, so we started Googling. Of course, that's what you do. And I called my mom because, of course, she's going to know. She, mom will know. And, uh, yeah, pretty much everyone said that if you have any worries, you probably want to toss it. Well, because it has so many cheeses in it. Yeah. It, but some of those cheeses can handle being out for a while. So we went ahead and ate it, and we're fine. Really? <laughs> we did. 
Wow. I'm like, I'm eating this like, you know, this is the exact wrong thing we should do right now. But you don't you don't want to waste lasagna. That was our point. This is good lasagna. That is my favorite meal on earth. That when if I were going to be executed, that's the meal I'd ask for. Lasagna. Mm-hmm. Mm. What about the what the squash um, spinach lasagna she made last night? No, that yeah. seems a little too healthy. <laughs> if you're going down, you may as well go down with. I looked at it. I go, Why is this lasagna mm. orange? Uh, there's no meat. What's going on? By the way, it's not even just salami day, but this is the perfect date day. It's National Feel the Love Day. A little Ryan Gosling here. Wow. Is more than just a game for two. Okay. Wow, there's some pipes there. Oh, my heaven. Sadie's swooning. Did you just see her swoon? I think she's had too much salami on Salami Day. It's Salami Day, National Feel the Love Day, where you just get to feel the love. Hmm. I saw you feeling it. You're just, you just sit and <sighs> soak it in. What? What, do, what was I doing? You were just, you're, you rolled your eyes back in your head. Just, I, I do that started, for multiple reasons. You started just kind of swaying back and forth. <laughs> Is he your man crush? No. Ryan Gosling? Ryan Gosling, no. 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 My man crush. I don't know that I have a man crush. Tom Selleck? No. He's got a great stash. Great mustache on that guy. And a Ferrari back in the day. Now he's just the chief of police. It's different. Yeah. I'll have to think about that. Who is my man crush? Hmm. I don't have one yet. We uh, we got a great show coming up. We'll be talking about five ways to become a more positive, purposeful parent. You need to focus on this, Terry. Why? My kids, they're done. My they're... baby, my baby's eleven. If I haven't done it by now, it's not going to get done. You've missed that boat. So you though have a new one coming. Right. One here that is dealing with trauma from a lightsaber. He's okay. Okay, but you need to become more purposeful. A more purposeful parent. Positive parent. It sounds like something my wife would tell me. She actually sent this one in. So we've got Arlene Pelicane to come talk to us about that. We'll get to that in a few minutes along with uh, some other crazy news that, that you're, gonna, you're going to want to see. Um, and, and I guess here because it's a radio show. But first, let's get to Sadie Nielsen with the headline. Sadie, what's up? in a restaurant on Tuesday in what appears to have been a random attack. According to Paul Burke, the restaurant owner, one of, one of the regulars who was sitting at the bar when another man walked in and approached him from behind. The victim survived but suffered serious injuries. Police have released the suspect's description to the public and are reviewing surveillance footage of the incident. A new CNN ORC poll out today revealed voters aren't sure whether Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton would best handle immigration issues. Voters were nearly evenly split on which presidential candidate would do the better job, with 49 percent putting their trust in Clinton and 47 percent in Trump. The divide was driven largely by a differing sense of what top immigration priority is. For those who trust Clinton, it is figuring out how to ensure undocumented immigrants in the country can stay. And for Trump backers, it is preventing immigrants from entering the country illegally. 
On Tuesday, the Dallas Morning News railed against Donald Trump, saying he is at odds with nearly every GOP ideal this this newspaper holds dear, and concluding, Donald Trump is not qualified to serve as president and does not deserve your vote. On Wednesday, George W. Bush's hometown newspaper endorsed Hillary Clinton. We did not come to this decision easily, the Morning News editorial board wrote. This newspaper has not recommended a Democrat for the nation's highest office since before World War II. And if you're counting, that's more than 75 years and nearly 20 elections. And finally, an Australian man had his car taken away after police discovered he was using a frying pan in place of a steering wheel. What? Yeah. South Australia police were informed of a suspicious red Mazda and a male driver loitering in the street when they discovered the non-approved steering wheel. The the vehicle was impounded for 28 days and the man will appear in court in October. Why a a frying pan? Why not? I think he was late and wanted to cook some bacon. Get your hands off your frying pan. That is, uh, that's sad. Man, Sadie, thanks. You, just when you thought you had freedom, oh, this is Australia, just, you know. You only have so many rights. One day it's a frying pan. The next day it'll be a toaster. What next? A curling iron? What do you think this is, pal? <laughs> That's funny. Hey, uh, we've got uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. We're we're going to um, do some other news right now, but then eventually get. To, to our guest, be talking about five ways to become a more positive, purposeful parent. Also, our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, we'll, we'll find out what's going to be up on their show at the top of the hour. And our hero of the day, of course, you know, got a lot to cover on Salami Day, September 7th. So, Terry, what uh, what you got cooking? Let's see. So, we were talking about office and meetings, and sometimes they can be pointless. Other times they have great meaning for everyone in attendance. You said that facetiously. Obviously. Um, coming to work sick. Yes. You ever do that? Uh, yeah. Pretty much every day. Why? Because if I don't come to work, then there won't – there will just be another replay show. I mean, we know how that goes. This article says stop doing that. Not only is it gross, but it's literally spreading disease. Cities that adopt mandatory paid sick leave from 2003 to 2015 saw flu cases drop by about 5% after their laws took effect, according to uh, some national numbers that have come out. That means an estimated 100 fewer infections per week for a city of 100,000 people. Well, are you talking about Hillary Clinton? No. Despite the discomfort ill people experience at work, nearly 3 million sick people still try to stomach through the workday each week. A third of employees cite financial reasons for coming to work since they, uh, the lack of paid sick leave. The other two-thirds uh, do it because they want to look tough. Oh, yeah. That's not why I'm doing it. Or they don't want to have work pile up in their absence. Uh, so stay I, home. Yeah. You're making us all sick. Yeah. But it's okay. We have these nifty sneeze guard frisbee uh-huh. sort of tennis fact, paddle things. Well, you call Don. Don needs to come clean these. He needs to take them out to the cleaners and get our spit guards <laughs> changed out. Another news, a new study published in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, which you mm-hmm. subscribe to, Matt, yeah. added further evidence to the theory that it also comes with increased level of happiness. Old people happier than younger people. Really? Surveying 1,500 people, San Diego. 
It's a happy place. Yeah, great the, place to retire. Good weather, you know, mm-hmm. just kind of hanging out. Uh, they researched people between 21 and 90, 21 years old and 99 years old. Researchers found that older people were happier than they seemed to be, while the elderly suffered more physical and cognitively than uh, younger individuals. It, uh, it was the people in their 20s and 30s who had the highest levels of depression, anxiety, and stress, plus the lowest levels of happiness, satisfaction, and well-being. Really? Younger people are sad and are depressed and are dealing with things, whereas the older people have physical and mental difficulties, They're I guess. slowing down, but they actually are happier. They're happier. I, I think that's very true. I am happier with my grandchild, for example, than I maybe was day in, day out as a parent. Parenting is stressful, but grandparenting, I'm just, it's very casual laid right. back. So you have to be happy with this song. Yeah, but see, this is a great song. But again, if you're a senior, if you're older, you might pop a hip out, tap yes. into this song. Right. But that's okay, because you'll be happy just tapping your toe in your recliner while you heal. <laughs> Young person still has to go to work. Now, this song quickly became annoying, but you can't not be happy listening to it. Oh, no. This song, it's almost, it's like it's named happy. There was a award show. This guy gets up, starts singing the song, jumps out in the crowd. Meryl Streep stands up. Does she really? And they all just start dancing. Start dancing. <laughs> Almost a billion views, by the way. Yeah. That's one billion happy people. And another happy news. Yeah. I don't know if it's happy, but Jessica Alba, do you know who that is? Oh, yeah. She's an actress? Yeah. She, I, she was a girlfriend of mine once. She has a website. I believe it's called uh, Honest. Honest Company. Mm. And she sells Honest. stuff. Well, one of the things she's going to sell now is bipartisan diapers. Honestly? Yes, honestly. On honestly. On honest. So she says, uh, as the election approaches, let's teach our children to embrace unity and compassion. There is one United States, one people, indivisible, and our new election diaper encompasses that sincere belief. Hmm. It depicts a donkey and an elephant holding hands on the diaper. Wow. A donkey and an elephant holding hands... United around diapering. Yes. By the way, we do have some audio of Hillary Clinton's last uh, news conference on an, on an airplane. She got a very deep cough. She was very sick that day. She almost had it there. Oh. Oh. I think she's about to announce a policy position. Huh. Poor girl. That's sad. She's she's struggling through it. Well, maybe she to, needs to take a day off. According to Drudge Report, she may not make it through. <laughs> I love Drudge. <laughs> she is going to die. That's crazy what's going on with her. Um, and really quickly, because I'm going to bring it up with Sports Nation. You showed me something about numbers oh, yes. in football. The in college uh, football. I'll just read this here. It says the nation's richest athletic departments, those in what's called the Power Five conferences, the right. biggest athletic football conferences in the nation. So it's pulled in a record $6 billion last year, nearly $4 billion more than all other schools combined. $6 billion for 10 teams. The athletic departments or the, departments. the, the teams? Holy cow. 
So this is numbers from uh, ESPN. They've done some investigating and they looked at NCAA numbers. And these are from uh, obviously from uh, from state schools who report these numbers. Private schools don't have to report, but uh, it's insane. They're powered by the multi-million dollar media right contracts that they have, raise, rising ticket prices, and the richest schools have spent aggressively on private jets, on campus perks like barber shops and bowling alleys. Wow! Right on biometric gadgets for athletes, and on five-star hotels during travel. Huh. They've also hired a, uh, a many different people in their athletic department that are making six-figure salaries, including they have such titles as horticulturist, so yeah. someone that takes care of all the plants, and museum curator. <laughs> to shine the helmets from past athletes. And the top school, Texas A&M, from 2014 to 2015, made $192 million. That is crazy. Meanwhile, and that's the top 10, yep. but the, the bottom 40 teams from those same divisions, a lot of them are borrowing money from their states. They get money from taxes and from student fees so they can try to compete yeah. and keep their facilities up to you right. know, comparison with these bigger schools. And this is why BYU has a big battle getting into a conference because mm-hmm. everyone wants to get into these conferences because all of these teams in these conferences still make a lot more money, a lot of money. Compared to every every other team out there, yeah, unbelievable. And that's where people are like, should we really be funding no. minor league sports? Basically, basically no. And filthy lucre. Okay, that's the scripture term. <laughs> filthy lucre. Money. The love of money, the root of all evil. Don't make me go off on this. Anyway, let's change the subject. Let's get to Parenting 101. Arlene Pelican will be joining us. Five ways to become a more positive, purposeful parent. Stick with us, folks. It's not too late for all of us to pick up our game. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend uh, Show. You know, you got those kids back in school. For many of us, this is the greatest time of year. With schools starting up this month, you're probably bustling around to get them settled in. And it's, sometimes that's where it's hardest to be a good parent because, you know, you've got deadlines, you've got homework, you got to get everyone back in the habit. Well, September is the new January. It's a great time to make goals for the new year. Today, Arlene Pelican, author of five books, including 31 Days to Becoming a Happy Mom, joins us to teach us um, about an article she wrote, Five Ways We Can Become More Positive, Purposeful Parents. Arlene Pelican, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, Matt. How are you, Arlene? I'm good. How are you doing? Great, great. Good to have you on the show. Again, Thanks so much for having me. Hey, talk to us about uh, this. To me, I, I love this time. It starts to get a little yeah. crisp in the air, and then all of a sudden the kids seem like they're a little depressed, getting in their habits of school again. What, um, the parents are all smiling. They're oh, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this I love it. Uh, it seems like parenting, it's not necessarily harder, but I don't know if our, maybe our kids are smarter it's maybe more stressful today than it may, I don't know, was a few years ago. What do you think? As a lot of parents feel like they're not doing a good enough job. Yeah. You know, I, I think this hinges on two things. 
One would be our perspective that if we come into parenting with this, oh, I'm not good at this, I can't do this, I can't keep up, they're so much smarter than me, then guess what happens? You can't keep up, and they are so much smarter right. than you. So part of it is that mindset of, wait a minute, I'm older, you're two, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be able to win this. So part of it is the parenting mindset that says, I can learn from others, I can win, you know, I'm to be honored in my home, that kind of thing. Um, and then the other thing I think is the culture around us, you know, it, it, we've gotten this bad rap that we think, oh, I don't want to be the authority, I want to be a friend, I, I want to be friendly, you know, and to realize, wait a minute, this doesn't work very well in society where there are no parents and only children with peers, you know, that make them happy, that's, right. that's not working very well. So for a parent to say, hey, I may have not been doing this perfectly before, but this school year, I'm going to rise up and I'm going to say, you know what, I am the authority figure in this home. And the more a parent asserts, obviously lovingly, I'm not talking about all of a sudden you become this dictator in your home, but you lovingly assert that, no, no, you are not in charge, little miss. You are not in charge, teenage boy, you know, mom and dad, we are in charge. And when that starts really taking hold and, and rooting in a home, I think a lot of the problems that we face start to fade away. Mm. I do too. And it's, uh, I think we can just get back to the basics, right? In your yeah. article, you bring up five ways to become more positive, more purposeful parents. The first is to make character building the highest priority. Yeah. Uh, what, what are you talking about? When you, when you think of activities that encourage right. character building, what, what do you mean? You know, when a parent would think, you know, what do I want my child to be like at age 30? they're probably not thinking like, I want them to be an expert gamer, or I want them to, you know, be like the best position in such and such a sport. They're probably thinking like, I hope that they're a good parent. I hope they're a responsible citizen. I hope they're caring to their neighbor. I hope they're empathetic. I hope they're a good person. I hope they're courageous, you know. So we have these desires in our in our hearts. This is what I want my children to become. But then when we line that up with what are we feeding them, their minds, their souls, their bodies, their activities each day, then you realize, oh, wait a minute, maybe I'm focusing on the wrong things. So it's really that mindset of, you know, in today's home, a lot of times instead of character being the number one priority, amusement is the number one priority. Mm. Like, let's just make sure my kid is happy and quiet and amused over there. Right. So that's why you see kids with, you know, you. I've written this book, Growing Up Social, with Gary Chapman, and this is why we see kids in cars and they're glued to their screens, and we see them in restaurants and they're glued to their screens. We see them in social settings where they should be talking to each other and they're glued to their screens, and they've just gotten so used to, please amuse me, I want to be entertained, I don't want to have to be challenged, I don't have to be patient for anything, and so for the mom or the dad out there, it means, okay, wait a minute, when we're in the restaurant, and this is just a small example, instead of saying, yeah, here's your game so that you'll be quiet so we all can talk, that I've got to realize character here is the big priority, and you've got to have the self-control to sit here and either color or talk or listen, or read, or, you know, wait 10 minutes for your food without freaking out, you know, (laughs) and so that's a character issue. So I think for us parents to realize, okay, if my child is is crying and saying, I'm mean because I won't do X, Y, and Z, this is character building and this is okay. (laughs) Well, and maybe that's what you do. You talk about it, right? You talk about this is character building. When you're 20, 30, you're going to need a lot of character. And when you're 12, you're going to need a lot of character. So instead of just distracting you, let's let's just grow some character. Let's try to grow character for 10 minutes, then I'll let you be distracted. 
Yeah, we're so used to, I think when you and I were growing up, Matt, it was like Disneyland came every few years, and it was like this big thing you looked forward right. to. And today's child is like, Disneyland's every weekend. Like, <laughs> what are we going to do now, Mom and Dad? So <laughs> like, true. What party can be bigger and better and more over the top, you know? And so I think that for us as parents to realize we're not the cruise director, we do not have to give the Disneyland experience every other weekend, like that is not necessary. It's okay for a child to be bored. It's okay for a child to kind of, as Dr. Chapman would say, run a stick in a bucket of water and that's it. You know, just (laughs) think, you know, that there's no space for that now. And I remember when my daughter Lucy, she was like three years old and we're going to take her to Disneyland for the first time and so telling her about it. And every morning she would wake up and she'd say, is today tomorrow? <laughs> because I told them we're going to go like in a week. And right. I knew I shouldn't tell her too soon. But I thought that was so cute. And I think our kids need more of that. Is today tomorrow? Like that patience mm-hmm. of, of waiting for things, waiting for the latest gadget, waiting uh, to, to grow up instead of growing up so soon. And that's that character building that needs to happen. Talk about your next point, reward initiative and effort. Um, yeah. uh, instead, we just, I guess we reward them regardless. Well, yeah, you showed up. Yeah. You get a trophy. You killed it. <laughs> you're, you're breathing. Hey, you're wearing, a, you're wearing your jersey. You want a trophy? (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. So it's this whole idea as parents, of course we want to encourage all of our children. Of course we don't want them to feel like, if you don't win, you know, you're nothing. No, that's, you know, we don't want that. But we also want them to know that if you try, you will be rewarded. Right. And if you don't try, you will not be rewarded because that's how life works. And so it's this whole idea that, no, not everyone should get a participation trophy. And, yes, it's okay for someone's feelings to get hurt because someone else worked harder and they were acknowledged for that. That's okay. So I remember my son, Ethan, who was on this little basketball league, you know, and, and he was only in third grade, and their team was awful. You know, so the other team was just killing them. And it was like 56 to 0, you know, 60 to 0. And so finally they turned off the scoreboard because, of course, they don't want the children to think, oh, no, it was, you know, 150 to zero. Hmm. But that's kind of our attitude, like shield them. But every kid knew it was 106 to zero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're keeping crap, they know. Right. So for us as parents to realize it is, that's okay, that's life. And you talk to the kids and you say, you know, they were obviously a much better team and you guys have got some skills to learn, and that's fine. But we sometimes, as parents, we overshield our kids, and instead we need to say, "Hey, let's reward initiative. Let's reward effort." So, for instance, in our our home, and believe me, this is not something you have to do. It's just an idea. Our kids are in second grade, fifth grade, and seventh grade, and instead of getting an allowance they get money when they do things. So instead of getting like a weekly allowance for chores, et cetera, they earn the magic dollar by showing initiative. So if you have, wow, you did that without being asked, you took out the trash and I didn't even have to ask you, that's a dollar. Mm. Wow, you picked up your sister's stuff because you knew she had a lot to do, wow, that's a dollar. Oh my goodness, you talked to that adult that we just met and you really engaged them and asked them questions and made them feel special, that's a dollar. That was really good behavior. So so we're, you know, and people would say, oh, you're bribing them. Well, we're giving them rewards. We're saying, because on their own, you know, no one wants to clean the kitchen or right. anything like that. But you're rewarding initiative. You're rewarding effort. And I you're love saying, that. hey, I saw that. And, and you're going to get a reward. But we tell them, too, you know, we're not going to see it all the time. 
And sometimes you'll do a really great thing and no one will say anything and you won't earn a dollar. Mm -hmm. And we tell them that's what the marketplace is like also. But you just keep doing the right thing and eventually you will reap what you sow. Mm. And so reward, initiative, and effort. Yeah, no, that's and that's just learning 101. Yeah. We're speaking with Arlene Pelican. If you go to her website, ArlenePelican.com, you can get all of the information about her books, her wonderful articles and information. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. We're talking five ways to become a more positive, purposeful parent. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. And today we are talking with Arlene Pelican. She is uh, an author and has uh, written many books. In fact, some of them were, she wrote with um, the great, uh, the great, I, I guess he's, I don't, I don't know what you, what you call him because it's, but he is one of the great gurus of life uh, and the love languages Gary Chapman. Arlene, what was that experience like for you? That was excellent. Gary Chapman is just such a wealth of knowledge and such a gracious, kind man, so easy to work with. So that was really oh. thrilling. It was like, I'm talking to Dr. Gary Yeah, Chapman. he's amazing. amazing. Well, yeah. and you've been able to, to capture a lot of that power as well. You, we're going over an article you wrote, Five Ways to Become a More Positive, Purposeful Parent. You've taught us about making character, building the highest priority in our parenting, reward initiative and effort. Talk about, uh, we only have a, about five more minutes, talk about teaching your children how to manage their emotions and to yeah, do the we, right thing. We're so wired that we, oh, how did you feel? How did that make you feel? And those are important questions. But perhaps a better question to ask your child is, what do you think about that? What do you think you should do? And the whole idea is that if we went by feelings, I don't feel like eating carrots. I don't feel like doing homework. I don't feel like doing a great many things. I don't feel like taking a shower. But you've got to teach your children, no, you manage those emotions and you do the right thing even when you don't feel like it. So it's, it's kind of reframing that subject. There was an article on CNN uh, a long time ago, but it was this big firestorm because a child, they said the child shouldn't be made to hug grandma. Right. The child doesn't want to hug, hug grandma. grandma. Hug yeah. grandma, you know. And as long as grandma is not this weirdo psycho, you know, <laughs> like that's going to harm the child, then I don't care how she smells. I don't care what she looks like. You are going to hug your grandma. Yeah. But, but today's parent is like, oh, well, they didn't want to feel it, and that might upset them. And no, we will do the right thing even when it's upsetting to our feelings. Mm. And feelings, yeah, we always think that they're the perfect predictor of things, yeah. but a lot of times our feelings are just off, right? Yes, I, mean, I don't feel right. like going to work, but I just go. That's right. right. Another one yeah. that I think is I think is really powerful is make the Bible and prayer a part of your everyday life. Yeah. So it's not just at church when you go. It's not just the one thing you do a week. But your kids are really watching, and they say, wow, when mom or dad have a problem, they pray about it. Or when mom and dad don't know what to do, they look in the Bible and they kind of look for guidance. Or they mm. ask a, a godly friend, what do you think about this? And so when your kids see that, it shows them, wow, this is real. Uh, I meet with a group of moms. It's called Moms in Prayer, momsinprayer.org. You can look at it, and it's basically the idea is two praying moms for every school. 
Wouldn't that be so cool? Mm. Every school in America prayed for by two praying moms. And so the moms and I will get together, we'll pray for our public school, we'll pray for our children, pray for God's protection, God's peace, and our kids know that, and they'll say, oh, mom, you're praying today, can you please pray for my test, or can you please pray for this? And so for the kids, for your kids to see that, wow, my parent prays. And I always joke with parents, if you know your kid's coming down the hall, it's okay, just drop to your knees and say your <laughs> grab that Bible and start reading. Right. You know, let them catch you doing it so that they see, like, okay, this, this is, is a how part it works. of everyday life. Yeah. In fact, and there's, there's great research showing that uh, having that connection with a higher power decreases anxiety, decreases depressions. It makes yes. us feel healthier and, and actually be healthier. Yes. Absolutely. What about the last one? Put good habits in place one at a time. Is that, yeah, is that is, so we don't overwhelm? That and to realize that so much of what your child and what we do is habits. It's not like you're thinking about it. Okay, I'm going to do this now after work. I mean, you just do it. You watch the show. You do this. You eat this food. And so studies are showing that 45 to 50 percent of what you do every day is just simply habit. So when you have children, you can realize, wow, the habit they build as children will carry with them through adulthood. Mm. So if you teach them, do your work first and then play, like they'll learn that when they grow up. If you, you know, I've got my, my daughter will say, I have a friend mom and every single day she drinks soda pop. Cheetos yeah. and a Nutella sandwich on white bread. <laughs> like, that's probably not going to work out that well when she's 40. <laughs> so put those habits in place. And what, the reason I say one at a time is when you try to fix everything, you get kind of overwhelmed. So if you've got that lunch that you realize, wow, I should put like one healthy thing in there <laughs> for the habit, then that's your habit. I'm going to put an apple, start putting an apple in my child's lunch every day. And after, you know, a month or two, you'll have that habit down and then put another habit in place. Yeah. And just realize you're building those habits. That's why the screen time is so important, because if your child has a habit of every free moment, gaming, 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 social media, social media, social media, then that's a hard habit to break in adulthood. Mm. So that's a huge reason to limit that social media and let them do other things that'll be healthier habits when they grow up. That's great. And yeah, then they have a repertoire they can they exactly. can pull from. Powerful yes. stuff. Well, uh, Arlene, we appreciate you and really a great re- resource at your website, uh, arlenepelicane.com. It's such a uh, it, there's just so many things to choose from um, and we appreciate your willingness to be on the show today. Thank you. Such a joy always to talk with you, man. You bet. You too. Take care. We'll take a break, my friends, and uh, come back. When we come back, our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation will be joining us. We're going to find out what's, what will be coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Then we'll talk about our hero of the day. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. everybody to the Matt Townsend show <laughs> little James Harden for you you gotta love this uh, Harden soul <laughs> Harden soul is the name of that song we will shoot it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation find out what's coming up on their show today hello gentlemen wait that's not William Hung that's James Harden that's James Harden oh boy isn't that you there's a great you can get the full song of that <laughs> Harden Soul. By the way, you know why I'm playing it? Because today is National Feel the Love Day. Feel it. Feel the love. Do you guys feel the love? Always. 
Yeah. Yeah. Cha. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Okay, guys, I'm uh, I'm about to drop one on you. You ready? Drop a major bomb. Bring it. When do you not? Have you guys ever heard of the Power Five conferences? <laughs> There's five of them. I'm not, I'm not aware sigo, of this, de uh, this so-called Power Five conference <laughs> discussion that poder you bring up, sigo? Matt. Here we go. The nation's richest athletic departments, those in the Power Five conferences, Texas, number one. pulled in a record $6 billion mm. last year. Hmm. $4 billion more than all the other schools combined. Now, do you know why BYU wants to be a Power 5 school? Yes. Money, money, money. By the way, do you, okay, here's the deal. Now, I think Jerem said Texas is actually not first. Texas is second on the list. Do you know what the number one school is? Notre Dame. No. I don't know. Someone's, who's number one? It's Texas A&M. Oh, it's A&M. I don't believe that for a second. Texas A&M is about 90... Is that right? $9 million ahead of Texas. How do they do that with Texas having the Longhorn Network and all of that I have stuff? no idea. Texas a and oh, I think Texas A&M may have had a different uh, media right, media contract or something. Something was they different do, with They're theirs. in the SEC. Maybe that's it. I, I don't believe that number for a second. Uh, Ohio State's third, Michigan State, $152 million is what Michigan brought in to their athletic department. Uh, Good Al- for them. Alabama, yeah, that's great. 148 mil. It's a lot of money. And that's just Alabama football, right? mostly, because they don't really have yeah. a ton of other sports. You know what's amazing? Good. BYU can beat Power 5 teams that make way more money than them, like Arizona. Right. BYU's the middle-class kid just in, the, the, in the neighborhood yeah. that hangs with the yes, rich kids with on the Yes, with the big field. boys, yeah. and sometimes beats them. Yeah, sometimes. It's not always. BYU's not a national sometimes. power. yeah. Winning national titles, but they compete at a really high level across the board, yeah. too. We're not just talking about football and basketball, where BYU is a top 30, 40 kind of program pretty consistently. We're talking about all the sports. By the way, same thing. They've got one of the best BYU Sports Nation programs ever. They have their own daily show, which is cool, too. Yeah. They being... And the hosts are to die for. We're the middle class kid that got the pre-release on the Xbox One S. Wow. (laughs) I guess that's good. (laughs) <laughs> hey, by the way, do you guys know it's Salami Day? What are you going to do for Salami Day? I'll eat a sandwich for lunch. Um, this this is going to— Because I've made it. Tell me this doesn't sound good. Salami is cured, fermented, and air-dried sausage. Interesting. Does that make you want more of it? Uh, Maybe not. I, I know I no. Know, no. <laughs> My lack of response should be your answer. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. Did um, fill me in on your show? You, you're still going to have a program, right? Even yeah. though we're preparing in, for in the in lieu Utes. of National Salami Day, uh, we're going to talk about your expectations between BYU and Utah this Saturday. Ooh. Do you expect BYU to win? Uh, Yay, nay, yeah. why? Why not? Uh, I, what, do you, what do you hope? I hope they win. I am intrigued by what BYU fans really expect. Because they are technically row. not supposed to win this game. New head, new head coach road, on the road. road they're game. an underdog. Right, ten years since they won up there. But but Kalani may know some secrets. Well, Kyle Whittingham knows some secrets too. <sighs> Blasted. <laughs> because Kalani so is true. Under him on his staff. But what? But maybe Ty will be the big deci- deciding factor. Maybe Taysom Hill and Jamal Williams. Yeah, BYU senior. should have an advantage at the quarterback and running back positions. And don't you think? Don't you think Taysom is going to probably run a little bit more? I think Taysom. It took him a week to kind of get back in the groove. 
but I expect him to be a little bit more explosive in the Utah game. I really do expect that. He said he feels a little heavier, or he is heavier, uh, and he doesn't feel as quick, but he thinks he'll get that back soon. Yeah. But, you can't simulate that kind of sp- the no. game speed. But my right. fear is every time he runs, I just look at his tiny little ankles, and I just think those things could snap like a twig. There's nothing tiny about Taysom Hill. <laughs> <laughs> the only tiny thing is his ego. Is his tiny little ego. I know, but I don't want him to get hurt. So. I know. The thing is, you I saw, think that plays you into this. When, when he's getting tackled, like mm. he's, he's falling a different way. Yeah, he is. Like, he is aware. Yeah. But that now that means he's just going to break another part of his back or when his he's body. Tackled, he that's is a terrible thing to say. I know, he's, but what he does, he jumps on it. Like, did you see him? He kept his ankles like up in the air. Uh, it was just it scares me every time. I think he wanted to play the whole season, and that's playing into how he runs. Ah. Yeah, I really do. I think that every to use a, a phrase from these parts, fiber of his being is consumed with staying healthy. Mm. Yeah, and winning the game. Yeah, but luckily he didn't have a situation where he had to plow into somebody in that right. game. Oh, okay. Well, so that's going to be a big part of it, and you're going to try to decide what BYU or Cougar Nation is saying about the Utah game. We're just going to share our expectations that's and cool. let the fans weigh in as well. Yeah. Plus, uh, the leading receiver Jonah Trenman and the leading tackler Butch Pau 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 from practice two on one. Talk to those guys. Interesting stuff, including why Jonah Trinnaman's or what happened to his arms during the game. Mm-hmm. What? That has to do with the T Rex. <laughs> oh, did they go? Did he go a little arm? <laughs> we'll tell you coming up. It's weird. I've like I've never heard of this happening to someone before. Also, why in the world has someone called Butch Pau Donnie Pooh before? <gasps> did the guy live? There's. <laughs> There's a backstory there. T-Rex and Pooh. It's coming up on BYU Sports That Day. was my favorite cartoon, T-Rex and Pooh. Is, T-Rex the Pooh. Did, didn't something happen to Teneman? Ten, Teneman? Trineman. Trineman. Didn't something happen to him in the game where he didn't go back in or something? He came back in. He came back in, but he, he was, was crucial out, in the final He was drive. out for a minute, and that's... Was that because of Little Arms? We'll get into that. Oh, my heavens. What happened? We'll tell you. You guys, you have lots of good stuff. We always have good stuff. Also, how many spots outside the top 25 did BYU land this week in the Associated Press poll? <laughs> really? And where does BYU-Utah rank among all the games in week two? It's pretty good. Is it good? Mm-hmm. So do you guys do you what's your gut say? I mean, what can you my just, gut say about, about who's going to win yeah. or expectations? Says, eat food in two hours. Eat you eat food two hours. That's what my gut says. So um okay. I'm not going to give you my answer because we'd like some people to stick around and Oh, they're going like, to stick we, around. Have a yeah. Reason yeah, we can stick just show around. you our cards. We've got to play the game. Yeah, no, that's yeah. smart. Yeah. See, that's why you guys get we'll, the big bucks. I'll tell you Friday if we haven't already told you. I will tell you this much. What? Expect the unexpected. Because that is the trend. Dun dun dun! In this game, so you can read into that how you want, Matt. Expect the unexpected. Can you do that noise again, Jerem? Jerem, can, can we play that? Expect the unexpected. We have we have that audio piece. I don't know if it. Will... There we go. Yep. Wow. That. That's some good audio right there. <laughs> okay, let me the let, drama. Let, let me see that. So that was from your show. Let me play something from our show, and then you. We'll just let the listeners compare. Girl, I you, me. BYU, you so 
this week. Gonna play some football on the field. Can you sing more off pitch? I don't think that you can, you can. sing more off pitch. No, you can't. Like he's as bad a singer as he is uh, as good a shooter. Passing. For you and playing defense. Girl, I notice you noticing me. <laughs> You're like kind of on though. You that, couldn't sing off. Yeah, you got to sing off key. That's hard and soul. You're gonna want to go get it. Oh my god, it's going off the shelf. I'm still mad at James Harden for when Arizona State beat BYU, and it was a joke. Yeah, you, get out of here, James. You need Jim, to let Jim you, Harden. You need to let that go. No, it was 2008, and it is still fresh. Go stir your <laughs> stupid pot, James Harden. <laughs> Yeah, you need to let it just just let it go, boys. All right, go do your show. Wax on, wax off. Good St- noticing me. <laughs> that is, you're getting closer. I know. You're getting right? closer every time. Listen to the apple seed. <laughs> a little plug for apple seed. That's really good. Okay, guys, have a great show. Knock them dead. Goodbye. Through the garage door. They're gonna love all these promos. We've got to make sure we cut those into promos. Holy cow. Okay, so as we wrap up the show, I've, I've been meaning to tell you this story all day. A man arrested on warrant uh, while visiting a jailed friend. Are you sure? It sounds like we've done this story already. Yeah, no, that was – there was a new movie out that we talked about that uh, – it's all about that. Jane McDonald was an upstanding, law-abiding citizen with a 757 credit score, an affinity for opera, and no history of violence. Then one day, something changed all that forever. He had never broken a rule in his life. Now he's breaking into prison. But in order to break into the most secure prison in the world, He'll have to remember that a successful break-in depends on three things. Knowing the layout, understanding the routine, and help from outside or in. Put your hands in the air now! Showtime. Since he doesn't own a gun, he'll have to rely on his brains. You don't look that smart. And wrong. I need a diversion. Okay. You're like a vegetarian. That was good. What's he up to? If you thought breaking out was hard, try breaking in. Break in. The guy who broke into prison. Mm, that looks good. I totally good. In fact, I'm, I, I am. That's going to be the movie I'm going to watch this weekend. If I don't watch the Utah game, BYU game, I'm going to watch that. Break in. That'll be a blowout. Just go see this movie. Now, this story, though, is not – the guy's not breaking into prison. He's just trying to just visit his buddy. Okay, so the guy goes to Lyon County Sheriff's Office, and uh, while he's visiting the jail there, they – you have to, like, show ID to do a security check to get in. And when they did a security check, they discovered a warrant for Clark Nagel's arrest. So he goes in. Then he gets arrested, and according to authorities, the warrant was failure to appear – on a bond uh, that was about a $500 cash bond. So now the guy's going to jail. Wait a minute. I think they're I think they're turning this one into a movie too. Are they really? So there's a breakout of jail, then there's a break-in movie, and now there's be careful when you go visit someone in prison story? Hold on. I think I've got it. 
It's not a full trailer. I think it's just the tag oh, for it. Let's see. But here it is. Five to ten. The sequel to Break It, the guy who broke into prison. Visiting hours are over. So it, it's a sequel. Oh, visiting hours are over. Five to ten. Break in two. That's, yeah, not even breaking it, just kind of visiting. Wow. Five to ten, visiting Hollywood, hours are man, over. they're pulling it out now. They're killing it. This is exciting. Hey, as you know, we always like to end the sto- uh, show with a little hero story. The hero are the volunteers that helped 75-year-old Fremont man finish his roof. Listen to this. 75-year-old man was spotted replacing his roof by himself. His neighbor stepped in to make sure that others could help him finish the project. But for Richard Dubiel, no project has ever been too big. I like to have certain things done a certain way, Dubiel said. Slow and steady is the way he likes to have it done. Oftentimes, people that you hire are out not to do it as quickly, not to do it, or they're out to do it quickly, but not as effectively. So he started taking on the job of uh, roofing his own home by himself. And it was going pretty well, but it was taking a really long time. He had calloused hands, his body was uh, breaking down. So his neighbors, David Perez, stepped in, and Perez, who lives next door, basically said, I'm going to help him figure this out. He said, I saw you up on the roof, and I uh, didn't think you should be doing that by yourself. So we got all of his friends to come over, and they put the whole roof together while Dubiel was watching by. He said, I'm just astounded. I couldn't believe that this fella knocked on my door and said he wanted to help for free. What a gesture. So there you have it. To all of uh, Dubiel's neighbors... Thanks for being the heroes of the day. That's all it takes is to see the need, step up, and deliver. That's why we do the show. We'll be back again tomorrow to help you see the good in the world. Until then, take care of each other and make it a great one. KBYU-FM, HD2, Provo. on BYU Sports Nation expecting the unexpected for BYU-Utah. What do you see happening in the 2016 chapter of the rivalry? We're two-on-one with BYU's week one leading tackler Butch Pau and leading receiver Jonah Trinneman. What does the rivalry mean to them? Plus, how many spots outside the top 25 did BYU land this week? Hugs all around for football. Let's go. This is BYU Sports Nation. Brought to you by the BYU Store. Simulcast on BYU TV and BYU Radio. Now from Studio B, here's Spencer.